Hey up everyone, welcome to Yorkshire Gamers Elite Big War Games podcast. And I hope you've all sat there with your cake and your tea and your bunting out because it's the Jubilee. Yep, it's 25 episodes of Yorkshire Gamers Reap Big Podcast. Uh, 25, our Silver Jubilee. So uh, I hope we're all going to have a celebration today. And uh, I've got a very special guest, uh, and that's uh, my old friend, Stephen Barker. Stephen uh, was one of the first guys I started gaming with um, back in my early teens, and uh, he had a great influence on the style of gaming that I do. And uh, he's gone on uh, to become an author and historian and battlefield guide so there's lots of things that we've got to talk about proper old school gaming and um, what he's been up to uh, since uh, since those early days so that will come up very shortly it's been a little while since the previous episode um, this will be a couple of hours uh, sorry a couple of weeks late uh, from where i originally planned to uh, put it out Things get on in the way, and, um, I've had to delay this a little bit, but we're here now, and that's the main thing. The last episode with uh, Ian McDonald of Flags of War has gone really well, as did the prior to that with Stephen Miller. And uh, I was down at the Partisan Show at the weekend, and uh, so that's May 2022, if you're listening to this uh, years later. I bumped into absolutely loads of people, and uh, it's great to now we're out of lockdown to start putting faces to people that I've uh, that I have uh, been involved with on social media in in its various forms um, and I, I saw Ian uh, in the flesh uh, and we had a good chat um, he'd been out to Seville um, to uh, watch his beloved Rangers and and they'd won the cup the Scottish Cup the previous day so bless him he had a little bit of a sore head so uh, it was it was great to catch up with him um, and then I met a group of people that I haven't physically met before. I uh, was chatting with uh, Big Lee, who uh, I've put out as a shout-out on uh, my YouTube channel in the past, Ray Russell, um, who um, we've been on the painting challenge with in the past, Paul Scriven-Smith, who uh, had a great game there. Uh, Henry Hyde I bumped into, had a chat with him, which was lovely. Uh, saw his new uh, War Game Campaigns um, book, um, which looks absolutely superb. These, these years and years of love and devotion gone into that book so i'm looking forward to that coming out and i'm pleased everyone make sure you get yourself a copy of that to support our henry um had a quick chat with guy bowers as well from uh, wargame soldiers and strategy and um loads of other people who i um uh, I'm sure. Uh, Richard Phillips was doing um, Cold War Commander opposite uh, Pendragon and the the obvious idiots, uh, Sean Clark and, and Alex Sutherland. Um, I was uh, tapping them up for Brews in the Binyard, which is uh, summer special coming up very soon. So a fantastic day at Partizan, lots of really, really great games. Spoke to Sean Bryant there, who was showing off Ian Smith's uh, 40mm Napoleonic game, which was absolutely out of this world. The terrain was amazing. 40mm figures. Um, he, apparently, talking to Sean, that's it. It's not going to come out again around the show circuit, which is a big shame because it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful game. And it would be at home in, in a museum uh, and is, is the, the, the pinnacle of gaming. And I think I, d- I don't think we should be frightened of that. I think that we should look at that, those games and go, wow, that is that is absolutely brilliant. And you might not do that at home, you might not do that down the club, but that's the 
Ferrari and we can all drive Ford Escorts and look at a Ferrari and, and enjoy it. So um, I hope uh, everyone looks, if you didn't go, have a look at the photographs and just marvel at how good that table was. Um, I believe that uh, that collection is going to be sold off um, and raise money for Ian Smith's uh, family. Um, if you don't remember from the previous episodes, I talked about sadly Ian passing away and he'd, he'd been uh, lined up to be a guest on this show. Um, sadly, that never happened, but we can, we can all enjoy um, the amazing stuff that he put together uh, through the photographs and through visiting those games at shows. So it's time for the interview. Get yourselves uh, sat down, get your painting ready if you're going to have a have a bit of a two-hour blast while this is on. Uh, I know a lot of people do that, so uh, I hope you uh, crack out some figures while we're, we're chatting away, me and Stephen. Lovely chat old friend um if it seems like two old friends talking about uh, their gaming experiences then that's exactly what it is and i uh, make no apologies for that um, it, it's great having anyone on this program but it's especially nice having old friends on hopefully you'll have your yorkshire tea ready next to your side you'll have uh, a bit of pie and peas in the microwave ready for a half-time break um so sit back and enjoy without further ado here's interview Well, welcome to the interview section of Yorkshire Gamer Podcast. And whilst Her Majesty is out there celebrating her Platinum Jubilee, we here at Yorkshire Gamer are celebrating our Silver Jubilee with the 25th episode of the podcast. So it's a perfect time for me to introduce a special guest. And today I'm going to travel back in time to the dim and distant past of my youth and talk to one of the first people I had the pleasure of enjoying this hobby with. Uh, my guest has gone on from those early days of hired church halls and Bruce Quarry's, Quarry's Napoleonic rules to carve out a career in history. So if you're looking for a guided battlefield tour, an historical presentation, or some advice on a heritage application, then my guest is your man. His latest book, Harditz Singh Malik of a Flying Sikh, tells the remarkable story of the only Sikh airman to fly for the RFC in World War One, and it's due out soon. He's recently returned to Wargaming after a lengthy break, so let's give a warm uh, Re- Big Wargames podcast welcome to Stephen Barker. Hello, Stephen. And it's lovely to see you, and thank you for that uh, lovely introduction. No worries, Stephen. Now, have you have you done a podcast before with your... No, this is a first, Ken. Oh, brilliant. Well, we, we, we're, we're very, very gentle with uh, podcast newbies on this uh, programme because uh, we've had quite a few in the past. Uh, well, thanks very much for taking the time today to chat with me. And before you get comfortable, um, I'm sure you, you're aware because you, you've listened to the podcast before. The, the first thing that we like to do is just to get a little bit of a taster, if you like, of, uh, of your War Games history. Um, and uh, we, we like to do that in, in four minutes. Um, so, have you uh, have you got a little bit of preparation done? You think you might be able to? Yeah, a little bit of uh, a little bit of prep, Ken. Oh, you know you're brilliant. Well, that's what we like to hear. Some people do absolutely none, um, and you can tell. So, um, I'll, I'll I'll press the button to uh, start the timer. So, off you go, Stephen. Thank you. Well, like so many people on this podcast, and I'm usually listening to this as I'm running, Ken, as I've mentioned to you before. <laughs> But this is really nice to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. So like many of us, I 
I was inspired by the popular culture of the Second World War. Um, books, comics, magazines, films, documentaries. In my case, actually, theme, film theme music actually had a really big impact and really engaged with that. Um, but of course, also with, first of all, action men, yeah. and then with, um, and then of course with plastic soldiers. That was one part of it. And then the other part of it was that my grandfather was in, in Egypt during the Second War. And uh, I lived with my grandparents for a short time in the early 70s. And as a result of his war service, he had a, a drawer full of memorabilia again. Wow. And uh, I was just so intrigued by that. He'd got a photograph of a lizard that he'd shot while he was in the <laughs> desert. He'd only shot fired in anger. And um, he, um, he had photographs, he had an old fez. And, and I was starting to learn about the war through that sort of popular culture. And it tied that story, That's his stories that he told me, and that drawer full of memorabilia tied me to the wider war. And it had a, that had a big impact. Uh, that and that sort of popular culture, but uh, as I mentioned, I, I I started off with with an action man, with action men first, long before soldiers. And the important thing, reflecting back about that, was that that is not adversarial necessarily. So I I sort of built narratives. It was stories, you know, built mm-hmm. stories with the action men, and then when the soldiers came along later, the plastic soldiers, that was also a narrative. But it was always me, like imaginary gaming these things, yeah. and and sort of fast forward. What's this? How's this related to getting into war gaming? Well, I met Pete Bate at secondary school. Pete, if you're out there listening, in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And he introduced me to Charles Grant and Don Featherston books. Yeah, and that was such an eye opener. Such an eye opener. And I remember thinking, why have I never thought of this? <laughs> Why have I never thought of rolling a dice? What sort of a person am I? And uh, but it, it was a real joy, and uh, and I'm always grateful to Pete. You know, he was um, you know he was well practiced in war gaming, got me interested, and we painted up Napoleonic armies, we painted up Second World War armies. We were using those Grant rules. You might remember where yeah. you had a defense factor and an attack factor, the uh, anti-tank gun and the uh, and for the tank itself and. Uh, yeah, it was all all fantastic novelty. Um, and we carried on very happily. And then at sixth form, Pete, um, Pete in a library at the sixth form, he came across Sean, our mutual friend, Sean. Yeah. And uh, through that, Sean invited us over to Delamere, up in Cheshire, and uh, have a Waterloo game. And and Sean, in the midst of these conversations, he, he told us that actually all of his figures were were painted to a particular standard. And um, and also, if we were going to do this Waterloo game, we needed Prussians. So I took on the Prussians. Mm-hmm. And I'm 40 years later, nearly. I'm still there with Prussians, Ken. <laughs> and uh, I mean, actually, it was important, I think, in terms of what came later, because it gave me a sense that actually interpretation is important in history. And I'm conscious I can hear that horrible music coming from. So <laughs> all I'd like to say is life got in the way after that very much. And yeah. last April, I picked it up again. That's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Stephen. Well, and going back to those old days when um, we were back in Cheshire, 
Sean was the like the the conduit that met us, Sean Wilcox. Um, how did you know Sean? It was literally through that through that meeting in the library, mm. and it, it was actually Pete who who met him. I think the I think as as with all war gamers, Sean was looking at a Napoleonic book. When he, I think he should have been doing something on social studies, actually. Yeah. He wasn't. He was looking at the campaigns of Napoleon by Chandler, I think. Yeah. And, of course, people spotted that, and a conversation ensued, and literally within two hours, we planned to go over to Delamere and have that Waterloo. That, yeah, that's amazing. And um, I've mentioned it on the past that I was just booking out a Napoleonic Wargaming book from the library when Sean... Um, mentioned to me oh do you do a bit of wargaming and then next minute um we we we've got a little group formed um and we we have talked in the past of the podcast about how that probably would be reported to the police at these days <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Perhaps, libra- yes. yeah librarians picking up young boys in, in libraries uh, with with toy, uh, stories of toy soldiers. Yeah, that's uh, a, that's an interpretation interpretive angle I've not considered, Ken. I've said before not? this moment. No, <laughs> no. Because <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've had a couple of guests on who've kind of who've met people, um, and you know said, "Oh, do you fancy coming round to the house for for a war game?" Um, and just gone round to some this random person's house with no knowledge of them. <laughs> I suppose it was a lot more innocent time in those days, and uh, yeah, I think so. Ken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, th- I think we've probably <laughs> moved yeah. on from there. So back in back back then, what were your what were your big uh, periods of uh, interest in 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 history and wargaming? It was it was very much the the World War Two, driven by Airfix and uh, and the, and also Napoleonic with those British and French, and then later came those lovely um, blue Prussian figures. Uh, yeah. that I um, that I went to, and uh, a little bit later on, we added some Hinchliffe and we added some minifigs. I mean, it was very much a, a sort of mongrel army in terms of it was a mix of twenty and twenty-five mil. Um, mm. So it was not for the purist, but it was something that you know I was I was proud of at the time. And then, of course, you came along, Ken. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, just tell everyone why I'm. Uh, a problem at this particular well, moment in history. It was a wonderful moment, which was a seminal moment in my wargaming <laughs> career, um, was that um, you'd obviously been gaming with Sean for a while, and, and Sean, I think perhaps it was almost like a representative of a delegation from the few of you who'd had the discussion, yeah. and uh, they said, actually, we uh, having seen Ken's wonderful 15 mil figures, he'd black undercoated, you know, as a 14, yeah. 15 year old, and um, Actually, we think we should. We think we should all abandon twenty and twenty-five mil, and we should all join Ken with fifteen mil. <laughs> and my response to him after a moment's reflection is not something I'm going to share on this podcast, right? Uh, at all. Um, but broken apart it was the only way to go because yeah. we could see the quality of what you produced, and actually, you know, we want we wanted to, and certainly I did as well. I wanted to go to a higher standard. Of, of gaming and your figures did represent that but fast forward what 35 years I did think there was an irony when I, I came into contact with you again and there you were with these wonderful 25 mil yeah. figures leaving me marooned with my 15 mil Prussians <laughs> well all my 15 mil Napoleonics are behind me these uh, 
There's about, nine, that, there's, about there's about nine thousand of them. So uh, there's I've, I've never stopped collecting them. Um, no. We just haven't gamed that much with them over the years. No, it's um, just so impressive that Ken. So when um, when we were when we were younger, you were known to for your Prussian army. What was the what was the interest that got you into the Prussians at the, at the time? Well, literally back to that. It was back to that first game in 1982 hmm. in Delamere, um, where there was a, again there was another little moment where I think Pete Bay said to me, "You're doing the Prussians." Because he got he got he got the British he'd got the British guards and the rifles mm. and he was so embedded in that and Sean had got the French, so yeah I was um, I, I was no- left to take the Prussians, can yeah you were you were nominated is uh... yeah it was yeah I think it was a yeah it was a done deal, Ken. I think when he yeah. asked. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, it was it was the best thing that happened because not only did we get another army. Uh, from a historical point of view, as I mentioned, it, it gave me, it gave me all sort. For the first time, it gave me a sense that there are different interpretations, and that was embedded. I went on a tour, a couple of tours actually, with Peter Hofschroer, and uh, who, who wrote those histories of the Prussian army. I went with the Battlefield Trust uh, to uh, to Waterloo, and particularly to Ligny and Plancenoit, and you know, you, you see Waterloo through a different lens altogether. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very um, British centric as the the histories yeah. that we've we've had all the way through yeah. uh, our yeah. period. And you, have you stuck with the interest with the Prussians all the way through? Then you've not. Uh, yeah, they're right behind me as I'm speaking. Now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I like to I like to show off to people and say, "Well, I've got a core." But when you've just told me that you've got nine thousand behind <laughs> you, I uh, <laughs> yeah. You've rather punctured my balloon. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I've got Prussian Corps, 18, 13, 15. And during the time that I've come back to Wargaming since April 2021, mm. yeah. uh, I've rebased it and perhaps we'll come back to that. Uh, and I've just tidied it up. And it's a, it's a lovely thing to be coming back to again. Yeah, it's it's great. To, I've still got some of the first figures that I ever painted based up in, in the current army. And it's, it's wonderful to have those still around. Uh, but just going back to that, Previous collection, the the twenty mil, twenty five mil. I remember some of our early games with those figures, and um, there was a great sense of I think naivety is probably a good word to use. We, uh, but enjoyment with those collections, um, something that is a little bit different today. Would you say? Yeah, it's, yes, it's it's different. I think there's there's always nostalgia, isn't there? Looking back into yeah. the past about those games, I think. Um, Absolutely, is that part of it is nostalgia, part of it is the novelty that you come into it new. Certainly, come to it very new when Peter should have shown me the whole concept of wargaming as a 14, 15 year old. And I, I still get it, I'm getting as much enjoyment, I would say, now in the mm. gaming that I'm doing as I think I did then. And yeah. we can perhaps talk about why that is, uh, yeah. perhaps a little bit later. But yeah, there's a there's a sense of novelty, there's a sense of nostalgia, but there's also a joy also of meeting new people. The social mm. aspects of wargaming, as you've said many times on this podcast, really important. And just the it's a stimulus to uh, historical inquiry. It certainly was for me finding out about the Prussians, deepening my knowledge of campaigns in the Napoleonic Wars beyond Waterloo yeah. and beyond the campaigns of thirteen and uh, fifteen, and um, well, that's part of it, but the other part of it is just the joy of recreating something that's historical. That 
I had the, I have the same feelings now that I had then. I think that's that's accurate. That mm. I want to recreate something. Yeah, because I remember certainly remember back in those days. I remember Sean coming in with a battalion. I think it was a Hesh Darmstadt, and and I I'd convinced that he'd made that up because I'd never heard of it before. Um, whereas now you'd just type it into Google and go Hesh Darmstadt. I had to get on my bike and go down to the library and, <laughs> and speak to some very confused. Middle-aged female librarian. Uh, have you got anything on Hesh Darmstadt? It was character building, Ken. It was character it was. building. It was. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody can see your daft inquiries on Google these days, can they? Whereas no. back in, back in the seventies, you'd have to go and um, ask nicely to the librarian. He would probably go home and tell their entire family um, about this young. Um, over-enthusiastic lad who came in asking about some minor German principality and the history of it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. The one thing I remember from those early games, particularly where we're out, Pete and I were playing and Sean, is that we didn't really know the quarry rules, those quarry rules that I know you've, you know, you've continued with. Yeah. And I did, to a certain degree, a little bit. Sean was the master of them because we yeah. were new to them and we hadn't seen anything like it. And there was a case, if Sean's listening, he wouldn't mind me saying this. There were occasions during those early games where I felt I was uh, almost like a British tourist with a, a foreign trader handing over money. <laughs> and he was totally in control of it. And we weren't always sure we were, we were getting a good deal from the rules. But he assured us in that charming way that everything was fine. And um, he were, and his interpretation of the rules was uh, was not to be doubted. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was definitely the expert in the rules. Uh, I think he was. I think he was. He was quite annoyed when I wrote that computer program that worked the casualties out, because he was no longer master of the uh, of the casualty table. Uh, and yeah, the yeah, he crop. was indeed. Yeah, <laughs> although, although, yeah, although that's the, the you and the computer. That was another story. <laughs> yeah, it, it never caught on. It never caught on, even today. It's oh, it was a valiant effort, though. Cam. It, I used it to was. see you sitting over there and think, "Oh lordy." Yeah, we we tried, we tried, we tried no. to push back the boundaries of science, but yeah, we, it was we, very we, impressive. We failed quite. We failed quite badly. <laughs> so I think um, it'd be it'd be nice to speak to you, Stephen, about coming back into gaming after after a long time away. Um, you know, people like myself who've, who've not really gone away, everything has moved gradually and I've not really seen any... Well, I've, there's obviously major changes, but they've come to me gradually. So since you've, you've, you've had a, a fairly lengthy break away, what's the big things that have struck you when you've, you've come back to the hobby? It's been... Um, I think it's been a revelation, Ken, actually. Mm. Um, uh, at least there were occasions with my with my boys, particularly Jacob, my older one, where I'd go to Colours and yeah. occasionally during the 2000s, but my own gaming had come to a halt. But the, my impressions of it are that, um, well, first of all, that command and control is universal now and mm. to be completely applauded within rules. It's, yeah. uh, it's the heart of what warfare is about. I don't you know, I don't need to tell the audience about that listening today. Um, also, I think the important part was much greater emphasis on Clausewitzian friction. Yeah. Every every set of rules has got a reference to friction, in movements, um, blinds included, 
or if it's Little Wars TV, you know, eight foot square of cotton wool over yeah. the Prats and Heights at Austerlitz, <laughs> covering the whole table. I just applaud that, and it gives yeah. me a joy. And I think it just, it's just a reminder that, you know, war's a human activity, and it's I've always felt and, and did feel when we were gaming is that war is chaos out of which there is some order to be had. It's not the mm. other way around that war is an ordered activity that can be represented mathematically, and then there's a little bit of chaos thrown in. It's always chaotic, and yeah. a general's job is to try and create some order out of that. Mm. I think the other thing that I was reminded of yesterday is just the, the general raising of the standard of the terrain and mm. the, the diorama quality of the terrain that I've seen. Yesterday at, uh, at Partizan at Newark, um, every table, no matter what scale, was of a certain quality. And I'm yeah. absolutely certain that the standard of of that has, has been raised over the last 30 years. Uh, and I think that's to be applauded. And I think probably the most impactful change that I've seen, it's, it's nothing original, is, is the impact of social media and YouTube and the mm. sharing of ideas and, and particularly the interactions between gamers that I've seen since we were mm. just yesterday over at Newark, you know, just yeah. the interactions already so important. Um, and I think without YouTube and social media, my engagement with the hobby, my re-engagement with the hobby wouldn't have been as profound as it's been. And I've just gained such inspiration from all sorts of, um, of bodies. And I also, I had a sense yesterday at Partizan and I've had a sense of it over the last 10 years from colors and warfare is it's a much more supportive hobby. It's the, when you yeah. talk to people at tables, people are much more willing to, um, to engage with you. And that age old debate, as I said before this interview, that age old debate about should gamers who are doing demonstration games at conventions, should they be presenting their back to the audience? Yeah. And I, I did feel for one or two of the members yesterday, I felt they were getting, you know, some of the people running participation games or running their own game, slightly conflicted. Uh, all of them, their duty, turn around yeah. and engage with the audience. And I had some great conversations with people mm. who conveyed their enthusiasm to me. So I think those are the those are the main elements. I think there's just one other thing to say. I think what I noticed as well, particularly yesterday at Partizan, is everybody has the right to follow the type of gaming and to indulge in the type of gaming that interests them. But from my mm. point of view, I'm interested in recreation of a historical battle or, or something that's based in history and less on competitive wargaming. Mm. And it looks to me, my impression is, I'm very conscious that I'm very new back to it, so I'm, I'm looking through a very narrow lens, is that mathematical gaming, equation-based gaming, as I used to call it, was very much geared to competitive gaming. That seems to have a smaller place in the hobby I don't know if that's true, but it seems to me, looking in, it seems to have a smaller place. Yeah, it's um, it used to be quite integrated and quite a big part of the hobby. I think it's it's not a style of gaming that, that I've been particularly involved in, in fact, ever involved in. I, I don't think I've ever played a points game in my life. Um, and but we used to have at the at the Leeds War Games Club, we used to have um, quite a strong um, ancients crowd who would 
played WRG sixth and seventh, and um, there'd be you know little measuring sticks and all the arguments about that sort of thing. Um, and that you know, I think the competition side it still exists, and you know, there's there's people who enjoy that competitive element of it, but it seems to have separated slightly from the the you know the the, the war game shows. There used to be the derby show where you'd have a a competition in one hall and a, and a trade in the other. And, and yeah, you yeah. know, the same Sheffield, Sheffield triples was another one. Um, and they seem to have um, gone by the wayside now. Well, I don't, I don't think there's a complete separation between the two branches of the hobby, but it's, uh, it, there does seem to be some separation. There's a lot more enjoyment, I would say now in, in the hobby. Um, a lot more people are, yes get a release from modern day life with the hobby rather than building up excess stress about whether the length of the barrel on their Panzer three is is correct. Yes. Yeah. And and um I think the don't know, this is a, this is a counterfactual really, but if they if at Partisan yesterday half the hall had been taken over by competition wargaming, I'm sure it would have had a slightly different feel, the impact of that through it. I don't know that for sure, but over the many conventions over the last 40 years, I, I think because it was participatory and demonstrations yesterday, very supportive, very friendly, very light mood, I felt, throughout the whole hall. Yeah, I think um, certainly the last time I went to a show with a, a, a joint uh, competition was a, a Darb, the last Derby show that was actually close to London than Derby. It was it was right. ridiculously far south. Um, and there was half of the hall was competition games. And you just didn't go in that half of the hall. And yes. it kind of had, a, like you say, it had a different feeling. And I yeah. always remember at Sheffield Triples once, um, uh, did you ever go to to that show? In, in, yes, in, many times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with thousands of different rooms everywhere. And I distinctly remember going into a room on the top floor um, and it was full of tables and people gaming. And I, I could have sworn that I'd got two Wellington boots sellotaped to the side of my head by the way that people were looking at me <laughs> as, as if I'd walked into, um, you know, some uh, United Nations conventions on chemical weapons or something somewhere okay. where nobody else was allowed <laughs> in apart from people in the room. So yes. um, it, 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 it always gave me a, a negative uh, spin on, on, on those sorts of sorts of games. Yeah. Um, so, so now you've, now you've, now you've come back to the hobby. What, what, uh, what have you started uh, gaming with and, and who with? This is a follow-up, really, to, to what we've just been talking about. I've, I've really emphasised fun. I decided not to go back to Quarry. I know you'll be very disappointed to hear that, Ken. But, um, <laughs> I've moved away from Quarry, and I've, I've gone to the very simple end at the moment, mm. and I'm really fortunate. I've, uh, I've found an opponent who lives nearby, Paul, and he's been great to game with because we're of a very like mind, some of the principles mm. that we've talked about today. So I started, um, I wanted to make use of those Napoleonic armies. I've got 15 mil Napoleonic French and, uh, and Prussians and Paul has created a, a 15 mil British army. And we're using Neil Thomas's rules, which are very yeah. simple. Yeah. Um, but we've adapted them in time honored fashion. Uh, of course. And, of course. Um, we're, and we're really happy with them. I'm absolutely clear that just because games are fun doesn't mean that the narrative that you can create with it 
doesn't mean that it is not realistic. You can have realistic outcomes through the way that the rules are are, are played. Uh, the other thing that I'm doing is Civil War, English Civil War. I'm using Pike and Shot by Warlord Games. Again, more yeah. of the, what I consider to be the fun end. Very enjoyable. Um, I always did for 30 years. I don't think you and I ever gamed it, but I did Zulu War in 20 million. Yes, I remember that, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, I noticed um, Lee, Lee, who was um, yeah. was at uh, Partisan yesterday, he was, he was an advocate of the 1879 rules, and I've continued with those 1879 mm. rules. They're actually circa, I think, 1979 for the anniversary of the uh, Zulu War. Wow. And I, and I love those rules. I absolutely love those rules. And I was delighted to see on his um, on one of his YouTube outputs that he, uh, he also celebrated them. What I've taken on which is new, has been inspired by Little Wars TV. There's been um, a number of podcasts, this one, uh, and YouTube channels that have really inspired me. And, of course, mm. you're all, you've all been recommended or are winners of, winners. The, uh, of the Caesar Award. Congratulations, <laughs> congratulations to, to Yacha Gamer, of course, uh, on that. But, you know, God's Own, sta- uh, God's Own Scale, Storm of Steel, Seven Sun, Little Wars TV, and this channel incredibly inspirational to me and little wars tv their antietam battle using ultra freedom rules i went down i went straight away down to warfare at ascot the yeah. convention there and peter berry did not have to in uh, <laughs> me to buy a confederate army and a western army for the um, american civil war from bacchus and they've been painted up for the Battle of Shiloh. So I can now fight, I can now refight 10 battles using Ultra Freedom. And we've just started to get to grips with them. What a joy that has been. Brilliant. Absolutely joy. Brilliant. brilliant. And um, Pete Berry's always happy to have money off people. Yeah, I must say, though, his, his customer service was absolutely excellent. He, he, I was a little bit sceptical. Uh, I said yeah. my painting skill is, is not of a great standard. But, of course, he had, he had a, uni, a little union... Um, set of union figures with incremental amounts of paint on them and he showed me ah, how simple yeah. it was in two minutes and that yeah. persuaded me especially as somebody who inherited from you ken the black undercoat yeah. approach and yeah. Um, yeah it was absolutely right because I've, I've painted up one and a half thousand of those six mil figures since november a little bit each evening ken Wow, that's well, that's superb, absolutely superb. And, and are they based on those sort of unit bases? Is that how that Altar of Freedom works? Yeah, it's one a, a six uh, six centimeter by three centimeter base is one brigade. Yeah. So uh, I've only fought Bull Run. I fought Bull Run, uh, I think three or four times to get used to the rules, and also because there's a, a significant investment with Altar of Freedom, is that yeah. you have to you attach paper bases. The scenarios are laid out already. Terrain often needs a certain amount of um, creation in order mm. to create the authenticity of it. It's not something you can just throw on the table because it re- because Greg at Little Wars TV has done such a lot of work for you mm. from the point of view of somebody who wants to recreate battles and take command decisions. It's been great, Cam. I remember back in the dim and distant past, it- you you were quite into the Italian wars as well, weren't you? But that was fifteen mil. Yeah, I did. You know, quite right, um, quite right, Ken. Yeah, um, that was as a result of during that time that we met that I, I was doing A level history, and mm. that included the Italian wars. And I persuaded Sean and the other Sean's names that you'll know 
that we should go down that route. And um, so, yeah, I ended up with an Italian army, I think. No, I had, I had a, a French army, that's right. Yeah. The only army I've ever sold came that. Oh, no, I did. Yeah. I was, that's what I was going to ask is where did they end up, those armies? Yeah, that's the only army I've, I've ever sold. It did have a convention outing, which was at Sheffield Triffles, I think, in 83. Yeah. I think we fought by a coca, and I still, in my in my sort of archive of, of material from that time, I still have all the um, display items that we had on our wow on our stall at Sheffield Triples. But yeah, I did Italian Wars. I do remember Sean saying though, after a few games, why did we not do English Civil War? Is that was that after a few games that he'd lost? Was it? A... <laughs> Um, my memory <laughs> fails me on that, but uh, yeah, me, yeah, I know where you're going, Ken. <laughs> yeah, um, so great to see you back in then. Have you got any plans for future projects? Uh, yeah, um, mainly the main ambition is just to play regularly and that with having a, a local opponent, uh, mm. that's now possible and that's once a week. And yeah. um, Paul and I alternate each other's houses. And um, but that that's the that's the main focus, just to keep gaming. And we've expanded the number of periods. Um, I want to um, I want to really develop ultra freedom and develop mm. a, 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 an affinity with the rules and uh, and just because I'm not I'm not really played many games with yet, just bull run. Uh, just really get some enjoyment out of um, taking on the control of an army. Of an yeah. army level game I've not really done ever before. Mm. The only other one um, I've got in mind is um, it's First World War aerial combat. Okay, yeah. And uh, I must admit, I did approach the um, Fat Lardy stall yesterday <laughs> at Partizan. Yeah. And uh, of course, Al, give me, Algae pulls it off. Yes. Set of rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alex Southern has them um, as a free download on his on his yeah. YouTube channel on one of the particular episodes. Yeah. So I'm going to download that. Uh, I, I, the only things I bought yesterday were a couple of First World War aircraft. So mm. I do intend to do some squadron level actions, and I'm really yeah. excited about that. Uh, that's as a, an antidote really to Ultra Freedom. Yeah. I think the other so that that's the next little project. The nice part of of having a, a regular gaming opponent now is that um, Paul is doing something that I, I wouldn't have considered, which is bolt action. Yeah, and he he's gone for the early Second World War, uh, and also a sort of Operation Sea Lion scenario. So we've you know we've sort of got sort of quasi Dad's Army type <laughs> characters, and yeah. I've really enjoyed bolt action at that level. So we're we're looking for a range of different scales, a, a range of different command. Uh, positions uh, to take and um, I think that's that's the extent of it at the minute I just I have to remind myself I've only been doing this a year again and of course <laughs> you know I've, I've got to earn a living and and all the rest of it but as a as a as a hob coming back to a hobby it's been the perfect hobby it's an, an all-embracing hobby and it's full of variety and I mean that's uh, that's it's great strength Brilliant. Well, what the, what the the question that everyone answers at the end of this first uh, section is the is the good old Venn diagram of wargaming, um, which um, 
been going for a while now. It seems to be becoming quite popular. It's popping up on a couple of other podcasts as well. Um, and um, that's just kind of trying to divide yourself, really, um, in between wargamer, painter, collector, historian, and how your sort of preference for for any one of those or a combination of those affects your style or, or type of wargaming. So how, how would you see yourself fitting into those categories? Yeah, I think, it, I think for me, it's, it's quite clear I'm a, a gamer historian. Uh, yeah. I like the research, I like the reading. There's never a day that I'm not reading something that's historical. The last year, because of the Ultra Freedom um, Odyssey from the courtesy of Little Wars TV, yeah. I've just been reading and watching videos about the American Civil War. And, and then it's wanting then to recreate those on the tabletop, some of those actions on the tabletop. And of course, you know, that's the joy of the ultra freedom is that you are recreating yeah. um, those. So that typifies exactly what I'm about. One of, one of the nice new phrases I've encountered since coming back, since coming back to Wargaming, I totally embrace is, Figures that are table ready. That's table also, ready. The table ready. That, that's me. <laughs> so, yeah, it, as long as figures are, you know, placed appropriately, painted to a decent standard as much as I can, I'm happy with that because then I can get to the what I consider the main business, which is a bit of research, a bit of understanding the the essence of that battle. What is that battle about? What were the key moments in the battle? And then can I recreate it or change it? That is yeah. that's, that's where I, that's, I I get off on that. <laughs> so, I mean, everyone, uh, you know, as, as I've said on here many times, um, the painting side of it for me, um, the painter collector historian is 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 my end of it. Where, but everyone, everyone has a different take on it and I'm always interested yeah. To, yeah, yeah. to see how people feel about those sorts of things. Um, so we'll take a little break here and uh, we're going to be back in a moment and uh, we'll have our usual uh, little big game chat. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're back with the second section and uh, big games, and we always have a chat with whoever comes on um, about big games, whether they, whether they like it or not. You're, you're bloody talking about big games on this podcast, um, so um, and it, it's quite interesting to speak to you, Stephen, about this because um, obviously you're just kind of one of my wargaming influences as 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 we kind of grew up uh, together, uh, first starting the gaming. Um, so. When you went to Sean's um, place in Delamere, um, you weren't doing a you know a ten-figure skirmish um, around La Haye Saint. You were doing the Battle of Waterloo. So, um, was is that kind of affected the way that you see gaming? Yeah, I think it did, Ken. Yeah, I think uh, very much. Um, it had it had such an impact because of the visuals of it mm. and and because it was for the first time laid on a, laid out on a very large table it was probably an 18 foot table yeah and and i think also part of it was the i could see for the first time real command decisions without making yeah. it sound highfalutin yeah i could see pete with the british having to make command decisions and and that was what interested me mm. and as as i've just said that's 
what motivates me today. So that was part of it, but it was, it was the scale of the ambition. And for me, you know, the big game is the, is the scale of the ambition. Yeah. And, and um, it, it, it's, I've always talked about aspiration on, on, on this podcast about wanting to do that big game. And um, we would always, if you, you know, we would get church halls and, and Sean's dad's cinema where we would game. Um, and it always seemed to be Waterloo or Leipzig or um, that we Lin-Yi. would plan to do. Linyi that we would plan yeah. to do. Um, looking back, were we slightly mad to do that? No, I think I think I think because I think you're hinting at it really. Um, those first games, because they tended to be large games, we tended to think in the currency of the large game. I don't yeah. ever can, and I think Northwich War Gamers that we 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 founded. I think it, one of the reasons that it, it didn't continue particularly long time with the fact that it, because of the time available, there was only going to be the small game. Yeah. And what all of us had grown up with and grown together with was the large game. Mm. And I remember thinking, I, I never thought for a minute that we would ever get together, apart from when we went to Northwich War Games Club, a small game was an option. So it was always long-term planning. And as I, I mentioned to you a while back, I still got a lot of the operational planning those war games. You know, yeah. Mocken is one, Leipzig is another. We're yeah. on 20 odd foot tables. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it came to the point where we, we, we didn't even consider a small game. It was something that might play, it may might take place every, I don't know, two or three months um, on that basis. And also universities university was getting involved and we were going off to different places. So we started to plan uh, in and around those schedules, but um, I'm pretty sure the currency that we had grown up with had an influence on that from the yeah. beginning. Because I, I I seem to remember you know phone calls and obviously no internet and email in those days, um, and kind of turning up with huge um, toolboxes full of loads and loads of figures in in random church halls throughout the county of Cheshire back in those days. Uh, and it, it's interesting to think that um, we were all so like-minded um, with that desire for the, for, for the bigger game and everyone contributed large armies for those games. I yes. wonder where, yeah, I wonder whether we were lucky with the people who came together at that particular moment in time. Yeah, I think, I think, I think part of that was that as people joined the group and the group expanded is that it was that again. It was that. It was that currency. Is that, that I don't think anybody outside of the people that were coming in. I don't think any of them suggested actually. Let's do this on a weekly basis on a six by four. Yeah. I don't think anybody mentioned that. Everybody <laughs> buy into the big game, and I think the big game and part of that was the three of us or the four of us that had got together originally had a passion for that for the big game and that's why i'm slightly i feel i've slightly got imposter syndrome on this on this uh, <laughs> uh, because of course you know i'm now operating in my new war game room or war room yeah. and uh, and i've also just come back to the hobby so I'm, i've got slight imposter syndrome but i can authentically say that in 
at the foundation of, of my wargaming with yourself and Sean and the other Sean and Peter. That yeah, that was um, it was it was an inspiration for me that's that's lived with me since that time. And did that come from um, you know you were talking earlier on about um, stories and, and narratives from from before you'd even started playing? Um, was was that the wide sweep of history coming into your imagination with those bigger games? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think to you know it, it wasn't that I was a gamer first. I was I've always been a reader, you know, mm. and um, it's not a highfalutin thing. I've just always been a reader, reading military history, and you know, you're reading about Napoleon's maneuver of the central position, mm. and you want to therefore run a campaign to do that. Mm. And of course, that's now possible with two and six mil and so forth, you know, yeah. and, and ultra freedom in, in a different setting. But yeah, very much the story for me, the, the narrative, the story, the taking on the role um, of a senior commander or a core commander, that very much appealed to me. And as I mentioned earlier, that's the the strength of where wargaming is, I think, at the minute. It's clear. In, uh, I read articles by Andy Cullen just in preparation for this hmm. from 83, and he was saying, you know, there's an article in Military War Games, and he's saying, you've got to know what level of command you're coming in. That was very much a war game development um, at its outset, and it's now infected for the, the, all the good reasons and to the benefit of the hobby the, the rules are now clear about what level of command you're taking and that's mm. absolutely crucial and that's what you know that's what drives me yeah but i think i think um a lot of people do enjoy that multi-level command as well don't they 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 enjoy the right i'm going to commit my uh, cavalry division in this particular location but yes. then they they dive in and want to um, and you know, I, I, I fully admit this is this is me. That they dive in and then want to unlimber the horse battery in this particular location. Yes. yes. <laughs> so there's the there's the there's the joy in the top and the bottom of it as well. Yeah, there, of course there is. Yeah, there is. Yes. Uh, there was a there was a um, partisan yesterday. There was a, a very nice um, Nordlingen Thirty Years War, and what I loved about that was the space that they created. Mm. It was a Vauban defensive position, and yeah. um, it was it was because it was a very long table. It's perhaps a I don't know eighteen foot table. It created a space, and you could see that manoeuvres were going on mm. uh, on the t on the table, and that again that that appeals to me very much appealed to me. Yeah, and um, re regular listeners of the podcast, please sit down at this point. Um, but I um. I can see that with, uh, I don't know whether you've seen the, the games of Pear Broden, um, but have, um, yeah. yeah, Pear does that in, in six mil. Um, and though I'm, I am 28 mil centric and uh, the, the joy for me with six mil is if, if you do get that six mil on a massive table with big units, you can see those sweeping maneuvers from big formations. Um, it, and it, it looks really, really good. So yeah, there's there's, yeah. there's room in the hobby for all scales, just just not just not on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, causing trouble again, but there we yeah. go. Yeah. So what's the what's what was the the we talked a little bit about it, but what was kind of the appeal of those bigger games um, for, for you? 
Um, yeah, just putting yourself in the role of, if not the great commanders, maybe mm -hmm. a core commander, yeah. or even a, a you know a divisional commander if it was a multiplayer game, and it was a strategic challenge, and you'd got a, a, a known opponent of, a, across from you, and there was, yeah. there was a, of course there was the interpersonal challenge that I, I really enjoyed about that. I also remember, as, as we're talking now, that um, I also remember the, the power of, I'm sure Arthur Sean um, was very influential in this, is that through his enthusiasm, his ambition to on the table two cavalry divisions, two French mm. cavalry divisions, three French cavalry divisions, a French cavalry corps, and then to lay it out on the table and before the game had started to use it as intimidatory an intimidatory yes. um, totem on the table. And, yeah. and, you know, and he would make play of that. But, so, and also, and that was, a, of course, a great driver to painting. Uh, yeah. You know, to next games coming up, we want that extra cavalry division. So, yes, I'm going to sit up all night um, while I'm, I'm doing my A-levels. And I'm also going to produce uh, three French cavalry divisions <laughs> because... Because Sean needs it on the left wing for uh, Mocken or wherever it was going to be, and it was it was that scale of ambition and the fact that you know between we, we fed off each other. There was a synergy between each of our enthusiasms for different aspects mm. of the hobby, centered on these big games. Uh, I think that all those elements were brought together. Yeah. And I remember Sean as a as quite a bit of a character during the games. Um, yeah. One story I, I like to tell is is the the tape measure duel where. Um, there was a large cavalry melee about to occur and he suddenly kind of leapt around the side of the table with his tape measure extended and, and <laughs> kind of said, let us end yes. this senseless um, uh, bloodshed and, and fight to the death with tape measures. And there was a, there was yes. a kind of a duel with tape measures for 10 minutes. Yeah, that's, that sounds very, that sounds very familiar that. Yeah. I also remember his, I also remember him, um, a common feature was that uh, if something had gone wrong on the table, it was always a throwing down of, and delete as appropriate, the marshals, <laughs> the divisional commander, the brigade commander's baton was thrown down, and he would quote flounce off to the rear, yeah. <laughs> and that was that was that was sure he was flouncing <laughs> off, throwing his baton down, and Sean would do that with a you know a flourish to the back. Yeah. So was that sense of drama as well that um, Sean brought to that and uh, there was a little bit of eye rolling I remember uh, occasionally yeah. from across the table yeah but um, <laughs> it was, you know it was fun I think that was the that was the other thing we've not mentioned it was just great fun and uh, yeah. you know to my dying day that's that's what I associate with wargaming is, yeah. is the it's just great fun uh, yeah. and, and I think that it is. The, the big the big characters in the big games kind of make it you know everyone has their own personality and then when you you grow up together and, and you 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 grow up fighting battles over a table those those characters do shine and uh, yeah. and yeah. and you have you have those memories and i'm sure everyone listening you know when they grow up with the people that they gamed with will have those those fun memories Indeed, um, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, so do. so it, it tends I mean, you've 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 only you've not been back long into the hobby, and um, Partisan no. was probably the shows off you know the big games to the fore. But it the the, the big games are becoming less and less 
uh, popular these days. Is that something that you, you've seen as you've come back? It's difficult for me to comment on that because the only place that I'm going to see a big game is at a. It's uh, I've been to two conventions, so I've yeah. been to Warfare down at Ascot, and then yesterday at Partizan. So, um, in terms of what's happening in clubs, you know, on mm. the grassroots war game, I'm not really familiar with that. If I go by what I see at, at conventions, I can still see that there's a, a scale of ambition and a, mm. and a passion for a big game and, and, and tied into that much more than in the past, 35, 40 years ago, the quality of it. And I, I go back to that Indian Rebellion demonstration game yesterday, just the passion of the guys around the table. You know, One guy had just spoke to somebody else for 20 minutes and then I just happened to be there and looked interested and he went straight for me and he wanted to <laughs> share that enthusiasm and I loved that. And I've been, you know, there's the gap. There's the gap on this table um, leading up to the table. And they told me all about the historical influences. And, you know, it was an appropriate and very accurate portrayal of, of Cawnpore, the siege of Cawnpore. And they, they, um, they brought it, they had to bring it in um, or shorten the table a little bit, but it was still, what, a 15-foot table. Mm. Um, and scale of the ambition was certainly there in, you know not in terms of the number of figures but in terms of the quality of the diorama the quality of the the figures but also just recreating certain aspects of of that siege so you had mm. the hospital you would never have seen the hospital at Cornpore 30, 35 years ago you just wouldn't have seen that recreated mainly because the figures wouldn't have been available. But mm. just to finish off about the Cornpore recreation yesterday, one of the guys was telling me that some of the figures had also been bespoke, constructed and wow. ordered. Uh, they were Nouch dancing girls and a wedding party. And I just, you know, it was fantastic. So the scale of ambition doesn't have to be always about the number of figures on the table. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's just about historical, historical recreation. Brilliant. And it's interesting to hear that um, your experience at Partizan yesterday with speaking to people and when we've we've touched on it a couple of times already is that backs to the backs to the crowd playing the game. And that's one of the, the, the big um, sort of um, negative points that a lot of people big, bring up about big games it shows is it's a club game and, and nobody's paying attention to the crowd. But that seems to, and, and I have experienced that, and it really, really annoyed me. It always used to annoy me. Um, but we seem to have passed that. And I think um, you spoke to quite a few people yesterday, didn't you? And and and, and uh, annoyed everyone uh, who was there, which was brilliant <laughs> to see. Um, and But you didn't get that feeling from any of those games then? No, not at all, no. I, I felt the opposite was true, that the, you know, I know enough about the war game in press What's been written in it is what I've just described is about players turning their backs on the audience because they're, it's if you're concentrating on a game, it's an inward-looking activity. Yeah, competition war game, and that's why that's one yeah. of the issues with it is that you can't communicate because you're playing. Yeah, and it's absolutely clear to me that that message has gone home to people, and and actually, I can tell that people authentically want to, want to do the opposite of that which is to look outward even though there's a bit of i sense there was a bit of tension that actually we need to move the game on lads yeah but actually that was 
that was surmounted by the idea that actually I do want to talk to people. And I could just mm -hmm. see all around every table, everybody was looking out. I didn't see anybody that didn't want to um, communicate on each table and certainly not didn't want to interact, not interact with me. Even if it was just a simple question, which battle is this? You know, what are the forces doing? What figures are using? You know, the banal, usual questions. Everybody wanted to engage with it. And, um, you know, that's so important for the, I think, for the future of the hobby. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to hear that. And um, it's something we, you know, I always try and do when I, I put display game on. Um, and and then, but then, then the, there'll always be somebody who'll come back in the afternoon and go, the figures haven't moved, what are you doing? <laughs> Of course, we had that conversation <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, my son, Sir Jacob, said that to me yesterday. He said, "You know, the, the games are not moving on." And again, we rehearse what we just talked about: is that you you can't do both. It, it's yeah. difficult to do both. And uh, but uh, but I I think the balance is about right. I think. Yeah. Do you do you still harbour that desire to get back into the big game? Yeah, I do absolutely. Occasionally, I say to Paul, um, we, we occasionally we a game in the evening it's a three to four hour game mm. but we have done one uh we have done one all day game and occasionally i drop that in um, yeah yeah he looks a bit askance at me that we should be thinking about a 20-foot table and hire out a hall yeah. and yeah. Um, and fill a, a boot uh, fill a van full of figures but um yeah i think um, yeah, I'll work on that. I'll need to work on that. But yeah, that's always my ambition. I've got and I've got that Prussian corps sat behind me at the minute. Yeah. With 38 battalions of Prussian infantry that I, I'd like yeah. to get on the table once again. Excellent. Well, that's lovely to hear that that ambition is still there. And, Absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely try and get that organised for you up here. You can have a, a trip okay. up to Leeds and we'll get we'll get a 20-foot table ready for you. Just to, I would love just that, Ken. <laughs> I would love that, Ken. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for that. And um, okay. ladies and gentlemen, we'll move on to uh, the, the Quiz and Room 101. So here we go again with the Yorkshire Gamer Quiz and uh, as usual it gets me into trouble so I'll do my little disclaimer before we start. This is uh, not telling you how to do your wargaming, this is uh, a appreciation of how close my guest is to uh, Yorkshire Gamer style of gaming and there are no right or wrong answers as they say to the kids today. Uh, so uh, are you ready to go Stephen? Far away Ken, yeah. Excellent. So, uh, first question is, uh, go big or go home? Go big. Go big. That's what we like to hear on the show. Um, not sure whether you've tried contrast paints, but do you think they are great or a gimmick? No, I like them. I have some experience of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. with contrast paints, yeah. And uh, paintbrushes, uh, Windsor & Newton, very posh, very expensive, or Yorkshire-made pro art? Oh, this is way above my pay grade, Ken. Is it? Um, yeah, I'm going to have to go for the Yorkshire ones. Yeah, I'm sure oh, I've bought them off, uh, off Amazon at various points. Well, when we were coming out of the show yesterday, there was a posh Land Rover Discovery in the car park with the um, number plate PR04RTE. So somebody, somebody, somebody wow. pro art might have been there yesterday. Very impressive. Mm. Way above and my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, question four, 96 figures, is that an army or a unit of pike? 
of a senior pike. Excellent, excellent. Um, six by four table, is that big game or small? Oh, it's a small game. I'm slightly hesitating because I'm <laughs> sat at one. <laughs> well, I always say six by four is average, is, is the average size. Um, Very kind so, of you, Ken. Too kind. That, that's what I add, yeah. <laughs> um, we are going to organise a game. Are you going to go for points based or historical order of battle? Oh, historical order of battle every time. Excellent. And uh, doing a bit of painting, are we mixing the paints on a wet palette or an old bit of MDF? Well, I didn't know what a wet palette looked like until yesterday. I saw Have one. Have you seen I, one? You're always coming on to this, yeah. So I had a look at it. And yeah, so mine's an old bit of, um, not MDF, but actually, uh, yeah, uh, an old um, saucer, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, old MDF. saucer. Yeah. Old, ti old tiles, yeah, that's me. old bit of newspaper, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's me. Yeah. yeah, excellent, well done, well done. Um, undercoating figures, black or white? Black, thanks to black. you, Ken. Hey. Thanks to you. <laughs> um, the uh, regionally biased question number two, um, a cup of uh, Yorkshire tea or dirty mucky coffee? Yorkshire tea. Hey. Yeah. And uh, question 10, halfway through already. Um, you're putting together a war game unit, um, and uh, so long as it's uh, historically accurate, do you like them, the figures tightly packed or socially distanced? Or tightly packed. Tightly packed. This is going well. And uh, would you choose a two hour club game or a weekend monster game? Or monster. Oh. Yeah, bring it on. Bring it on, get them going. Now, in interesting to uh, to get your, your your thoughts on this particular question, as you've you, you're a northern lad who's gone south. Um, avocado? Are they just posh mushy peas? Yeah, I've gone native, Ken. It's avocado every time. Oh, it, uh, pasta, you name it. I've got it in there. I've got two in the fridge. Oh, you, you need to get back up north. <laughs> you need to get back up north. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, Ken, if I ever do come north, I'm going up tonight. I uh, one of my first destinations in getting to the northwest: meat and potato pie, chips and gravy. Oh, with mushy peas. Now you can't talking. get gravy down here. Not like you not? not. No, not with no. meat and potato pie. You can't. No. Oh well. That's well. when mushy peas come into their own. Takes me back to the wimpy in Northwich, eighty-one. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Bit of mushy peas and some gravy. Oh, magic. Yeah. yeah. Um, the universal question so far, don't let me down on this one, Stephen. Uh, round dice, allowed or banned? Oh, definitely banned. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I like to keep 100% record on that question. What's that all about? Somebody, somebody tried to buy me some and they couldn't find any. <laughs> so oh, I'm, I'm kind of hoping they've gone out of production worldwide. Yeah, I hope uh, so, Ken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've 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 you know decided to make something useful for mankind rather than round. Yeah, dance. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, going you're going down the chippy, and uh, are you going to have haddock or cod? Uh, haddock, I think. Haddock. Yeah. Okay. Um. You're an old school gamer who's coming to back into gaming. So, yeah. do you love a good table and a set of rules like a casualty table, or have you gone over to the six and you dead thing? 
Yeah, no, I've moved on. I moved away. He's moved from on. The He's moved on. Yeah. Yeah. He's moved on. Uh, question 16. 28 mil is king, yes or no? Yes, it was evident yesterday it was. Yeah. I don't have too many of them, but it's evident it's king. It is king, yeah. And, and I, yeah. I've gone up and down the scales over the years, but I'm stuck with 28s now. Yeah, I did notice that, Ken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, unpainted miniatures allowed on the table, yes or no? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, controversial question uh, up here Bradford City or Leeds United when it comes to football oh, I'm letting you down here Ken I was a, a Leeds United supporter for a long time and still have a bit of affinity with them oh. used to go to Ellen Road quite a lot oh dear early 70s yeah mid oh, late 70s that would be the the dirty Leeds team of Bremner and Frank Gray and yeah, we're, we're not going to go there Hunter. Ken yeah great team the great Leeds team Occasionally, occasionally a game of football would break break out, wouldn't it? In between the yeah. fights. <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah, you can, if you want to, if you want to see the, of course, the apotheosis uh, of that is Leeds Chelsea, the um, the FA Cup replay of nineteen seventy. Yeah. You can see it on YouTube. Yeah, carnage, carnage. <laughs> yeah, there'd be there'd be about three players left. Uh, if yeah, Roy Keane wouldn't have hacked it, to be honest. No, no, he'd, he'd, have, he'd, have, he'd have run back down the tunnel with Roy Keane. Whimpering. <laughs> uh, question 19 then. Um, Yorkshire or the other place over the hill? Oh, I've got to go with the other place over the hill because one, my relatives in Bolton will never speak to me again. Yeah. And nor will my um, my my friends who live in Wigan. And <laughs> So uh, no yeah, I've got to go. I've got to go with uh, the other place over the hill. I'm afraid. No worries. Um, final question: um, GW Games Workshop are they the work of the devil? Yes or no? No, absolutely not. They are. Yeah. They are. As far as I'm concerned, they're a gateway for other people to come to historical gaming. A gateway drug. Well, I don't, no, no, I think <laughs> uh, yeah. I think no. I think they're definitely a gateway for people to to yeah. come yeah, to come to historicals. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think I think it's it's the it's the air fix of this current generation, isn't it? it, it I, well, yeah. That was that was our yeah. moving into. Yeah. I think what uh, yeah on a serious point, I think our, you know our generation, as I mentioned earlier, those things, you know, that popular culture, the comics and the books that I mentioned right at the beginning today, mm. that doesn't exist. That heritage yeah. is gone. Yeah, and. You know, the question is, how are people, how are young people going to engage with historicals? And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced, you know, my two, and certainly one of my my boys, they, they've they left Warhammer and are now doing mm. historicals. You know, Jacob, you met yesterday, he's yeah. doing historicals, medieval historicals. He would never have done it without Games Workshop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can I can see what you're saying. Um, so 65%, which is uh, very reasonable. Um, that's a very good, very good average. There's, there's no, 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 shame, no shame, no shame, no shame in that. Especially when Sean Clark got 30%. Oh, oh yeah, but he's got very different opinions to me as our Sean. Bless him. <laughs>
So following on from the, uh, the quiz, we, we like to get our guests to uh, reveal their, their favourite pet hate from Wargaming and um, get me to hitch it up to my trailer and take it down the Wargames tip and uh, chuck it into room 101. <laughs> and uh, We've had some interesting ones over, over time and uh, I do let my guests know before they come on so that they can uh, they can try and pick something that hasn't turned up before um so we don't get point systems every week um so uh steven what what have you come up for what are, what's your pet hate that you'd like to consign to war games oh, this is a heartfelt one ken this is, is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it took me about two seconds to decide to use this one yeah, this is this has been going for forty years. This is the yeah. what I call well, this is what I referred to as the the primary school blue river syndrome. Right. Yeah. So yeah. you have beauty, you, none of the um, none of the games. I, I didn't see one yesterday at Partizan, but you look at you're looking at beautiful terrain. Yeah. It's taking hours. It's authentic it represents a, a real landscape and then in the middle of it meandering its way across is what i refer to as the primary school sky blue <laughs> river mm. and i think you know what were you thinking what were you thinking at that point uh, if you want to see a good river uh, the best ones that i've seen and of course most of them are, are you know that sort of muddy brown um, yeah it's martin on seven sun he gets a, yep. a certain quality degree of muddy brown that no one else achieves really and they are I love to see that that looks like a river but yeah if you've um, if you've gone down the primary school blue color change change your habits yeah <laughs> I, I don't know I don't know where that came from because it, it was certainly prevalent when wargaming when I certainly remember starting wargaming yeah. and you know everyone had that primary blue paint um and i think apart from some very rare occasions in the mediterranean i don't think i've ever seen water that i mean obviously it's a reflection it's not the color of the water um but i don't think i've ever seen anything as blue as uh no. as some of the stuff no. as, azure i think it was uh it's azure blue azure you see that that's that's making it sound posh when <laughs> um, I think the, the the primary school blue uh, yeah. has got yeah because uh, there used to be those used to have those powder paints in primary school if I remember correctly and um, yeah and and the blue was um, I, I I'm pretty sure that in these times of need for um, electrical power we could get some radioactivity off that blue because it did <laughs> <laughs> it, it did shine remarkably uh, yeah. i never saw it in the dark but i've when i close my eyes now i've got these visions of primary school classes throughout the land with a, yeah. a little blue glow in the corner yeah <laughs> yeah and of course you know in wargame when we've been talking about palettes and you have all this you know beautifully mixed paint and there yeah. in the middle of the table is you know the basic primary blue meandering its way yeah yeah well i have Come to on, say I, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think um, there's any way I can defend that. Um, uh, it, it, it is. I have to say, I'm, I'm particularly poor as a host of Room One Hundred and One because I just tend to agree with everything that's been uh, suggested to me so far. I'm sure. I'm sure the listeners out there now have all got their own little um, Room One Hundred and One that they I'm would sure, like yes. to, uh, to to stick things in. I'm sure we've all got those little pet hates uh, one one day somebody will ask me mine and i will i may i may or may not divulge it um but it's it's great to hear that and uh, we've got another we've got another occupant of room 101 now oh, and uh, so there's a there's a, a big pile of couple of tons of uh, primary blue uh, rivers in my trailer and when the tip opens tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock i should be putting it in the recycling so thanks very much for that Stephen. and okay. uh, ladies and gentlemen we'll be back in a second to uh, talk about history and battlefield guiding and all that sort of thing So welcome back, and um, we've had a good chat with Stephen about about wargaming and his return to the hobby after a lengthy break. And uh, I'm sure we all welcome him back into the fold. Sounds like I'm I'm some Baptist church or something, doesn't it? Let's welcome Stephen back to the Lord. Uh, so. Um, but we're going to talk now with with Stephen um, about uh, some things that I'm sure you'll you'll all be interested in, and it's always nice to speak to um, people who do things that are of interest to people who like history, um, like I think most people do who are war gamers. Uh, and Stephen does uh, many different things in in relation to history, uh, and we're going to talk about a few of those during the course of of the next hour or so, I would imagine. So, first thing we're going to tackle um, is is battlefield guiding, and we would not had anybody on the on the podcast so far who's who's done any of that. Um, so, I suppose the obvious question to get started with that is is how did that come about? How did you get started with that? Um, as part of my work, um, I, I, I give, what, 30-plus presentations a year on mm. Civil War and, um, and Great War theme. And out of that, there was a demand for, for actually getting out onto the field itself. Mm. So if I was talking about making a presentation about Edge Hill, local history societies or military organisations, occasionally after those meetings, I would be asked if there was a tour that mm. went alongside with it and um, that was like an annual thing it might happen a couple of times a year and, and then it it became evident that in terms of my my self-employed museum consultancy work it's not a yeah. major part but it's a small part there was actually a, a place for it the point where now I will do 15 20 tours a year and they tend to be um, battlefields of the Civil War close to where I live. And I'm in an area which is rich in, in English Civil War heritage. So my tours are of Cropperty Bridge, Edge Hill, Naseby, and the, the Royalist capital at Oxford as a, as a destination. And, uh, and actually, that, that's my latest edition, the Oxford tours. Incredibly popular. I've done 10 of those already this year. And and what's the what's the clientele for those? Um, is it just general history people, or do you get you know like you said earlier on groups um, coming out for those tours? Yeah, there's a there's a range of different clientels. I, I suppose sixty percent of it is general history history societies, 
local heritage groups, museums, who are looking, particularly after COVID, although COVID's still about, it's yeah. um, um, history societies that want to get out. They want to, they've changed the way that they're operating. So I, uh, I've, I've sort of tapped into that market. But also it can be um, military societies, John Hamden Society. It can be um, the Battlefields Trust. It can be, I do a, a great war tour of Oxford. So it can be Western Front Association. It can be specialist military organisations as well. What's the, what, how much background research do you, do you need to do for, for each of the tours? Because I take it you, you're going to need to be quite an expert in each of the fields uh, i didn't mean that pun there in each of the fields but it was quite a good one so i'll stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you>. so, <laughs> um how much research prior to you know bringing a new tour in would you need to do you need to do a, a significant amount both about you know the, the historical action of the day but also about the landscape and i'll, I'll perhaps say a bit about that in a minute but actually for each of the tours and and often for the to the talks i give the presentations that i give i actually have at least two and often three versions of it right because pitching it is pitching it at the right level is just so important so for example if it's to a general history audience if i'm, I'm talking about the civil war it's got to be pitched right so I will, I will pitch that to, um, I will pitch it for about two hours length and no more. And I actually say at the beginning of that talk, we're not going to go into the weeds of military history too much. We're not going to go into individual regiment, regimental level activity mm. at the Battle of Edge Hill. I might, yeah. I might refer to the, the brigade tercios, but that's it. And I might only refer to a couple of them. And I will say to that group, if you want to know more, if you want to go into another level, I'll make some after-tour after recommendations to you. And I always do a follow-up, which is, here's a greater level. If I'm, tour if I'm guiding to, or if I'm indeed talking to an audience which is full of specialists, I will need to go back to where I started and go back to regimental level detail. Yeah. And do, do you know beforehand, or is it do you kind of have to judge that on the fly with with a group? No, I, I take great pains to find out what people know already. And in some cases, mm. if it's mixed, if I think that there's a mix of some specialists, so for example, there might be a historical society which has got a number of seal knot members within within, for example, I might put a questionnaire to their mm. chair. Can you can you just give me a feel for that? Because, you know, if you're on the other side of a presentation and it's pitched incorrectly to you, it loses value. It loses all value of taking up. So you know all about the Battle of Edge Hill. You've not visited the landscape. You want mm. someone who can talk your level on that landscape. On the other hand, if you don't know anything about the Civil War, you don't really know about the causes, you didn't even know that Oxford was the royalist capital, mm. and then... You, you need to present it in a very different way. And it's true to say that's been part of the success of the tours is that mm. it's it's been sold by word of mouth on those principles as much as anything else. Yeah, well, the, yeah, that's that's interesting to hear how you can sort of mould it to a, a, a different audience each time because, you know, you, you could get some people, like you say, who are 
Uh, I mean, do you get any war gamers? Have you? you yeah, don't... yeah, I do occasionally get yeah. war gamers, and it comes yeah. out. Can't resist. Yeah. Ring, it comes out, uh, and I can. Yeah. You know, I can sometimes hear a little comment that yeah. um, you know. Uh, there was. I think there were two guys. I'll never forget. There were two guys who were smacked at the at the sheer steepness of Edge Hill Ridge. Yeah, and they got it. Got it, and I'll say a bit more about the power of actually being on battlefields in a minute. But yeah, that was that was going to be my next question because it's something that that I've experienced at um, Waterloo, especially, um, is that knowledge of of walking the battlefield and realizing that the view that you get is is not the view that you have on the war games table. Um, so yeah, if you could talk a little bit about how that visits the battlefield kind of ref- yeah, affects a wargaming perspective yeah i think well i, I just think wargaming but also just, just in general really i think mm. you know battlefields um is it battlefields are a, a tool which are far superior than classroom learning uh, yeah. i think that's living history is another tool um in that case of tools battlefields bring history um Bring bring it to life. Enable people to make connections with, mm. with people from an earlier time, and they also stimulate visitors on uh, as part of groups to ask bigger questions about, for example, I don't know um, about the Civil War. Why soldiers volunteered? You know, mm. when you know and you've described the battle action in in some detail, I can see the penny dropping from visitors. And right, why is why are English people coming here from their homes in the southeast with Waller's army? They're up in the Midlands. Mm. What has motivated them? Mm. Uh, and also, you know, how did the battle impact on local communities? So after the Battle of Edgehill, 250 of the parliamentary wounded were left on the village at Clinton, the Battle yeah. of the Battle. And you can you can follow some of their you can follow some of their stories in at the National Archive, and also you know things like um, what part did women play? That's a that's a question I'm asked frequently. Mm. So you get into that. You more importantly than that, I think what battlefields do is that it also raises some of the more significant historical themes related to again the Civil War. So you start getting into questions about the role of monarchy, about democracy. About about, I don't know, judiciary suffrage, um, mm. taxation, and being a subject or a citizen. <laughs> over lunch after, there's often a lunch that follows this. Yeah. People are, for the first time often, and they, they can be older people, want to know, I, I've started to get a sense of what the Civil War was about. And actually, mm. it can resonate with where we are today, with some of those yeah. big themes. And it all comes out in two hours, and it's absolutely fascinating. But yeah, that's that's interesting. To, interesting to see um, and, and hear. I mean, it's a period I've been fascinated um, about for a, for a long time, and um, you, you you kind of think that the people are interesting to see that people are getting more interested in it now and it, it doesn't seem to be something that's tackled at school i said i never covered it at school no. um and it's fundamental to the way that we are um governed in this country it and, and um it, it's very surprising to me that that we don't cover it more yeah, yeah. very very surprising but 
Yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah. I, occasionally, I'll, I'll make a point. Where I'm sometimes I, I talk to people on the tours or talks about this. Mm. Is and and there's a bit of an obsession within formal education with the Tudors, for example. So yeah. you know, we know about Henry VIII's wives, and of course, that's often a primary school. But actually, the Civil War is a gaping gap in that education in terms mm. of understanding, for example, without going into the details of it aspects of the brexit debate mm. you know in yeah. terms of understanding our country and where it came from and how our democracy was established mm. it's not for nothing that for example you know tony Burney went to burford for leveler's day mm. because he believed that the crushing of the leveler's rebellion was one of the was one of the important moments in british history in terms of he believed that levelers were the first democrats there's a whole debate about that, which enables one to understand about where we are now and the value of our democracy and where it came from, and actually people fighting, people fighting for those rights to suffrage or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, and, and that's a key. And if you if you if you're a child in France, you know about the revolution. That's embedded in their in their mm. uh, in their education system. And just, just I must just share this with you, and just as part of the American Civil War. If I type in to YouTube American Civil War lecture, yeah, there is a wealth of fantastic material, and of course, there's good reasons for that. About I understand yeah. why American Civil War is a significant part of their history, and you know, maybe a, narrow, a slightly narrower range of, of historical topics. And in this country, I know that there are amazing people working on civil war. But if you type yeah. English civil war lecture or British civil war lecture into YouTube, it's a desert. It's tumbleweed by comparison. Yeah. And I, I think that is that is such a great shame. And uh, it's a bit of a, as you can tell, it's a bit of a soapbox of mine and a bit of a crusade to, you know, people talking about the civil war. No, I, I think I, I I couldn't agree more. I think it's one of our most Im important periods of history, and um, wherever you stand um, on the political spectrum, um, the the outcome of that and the the events that happened during the the war um, have a massive effect on on where we are today with with uh, with everything. Um, so yeah, it's great to hear that people are. Uh, showing interest in that um and uh, hopefully i'll get down and um get on one of the tours and and, and have a look at, at things yeah. um how much have those battlefields changed since the 1640s well that's such a good question um you have to take them um on a case-by-case -case basis each battlefield mm. has got its own peculiar particular heritage um, if you take, for example, Edge Hill, the battlefield at Edge Hill, of course, was, um, was completely transformed in 1940. At the heart of it, where the center, the epicenter of the battle was turned over to the Kyneton military base. Oh. And that's, a, if you forgive the pun, that's a double-edged sword because... <laughs> um, it's a double-edged sword uh, because, although it was very invasive into the heart of the battlefield, a certain degree it actually because it was a um because it was a base with high security it's actually preserved a lot of the battlefield mm. and i was very privileged to be part of a heritage lottery project i made a 
successful application with Glenn Ford of the Battlefield Trust, their project officer and erstwhile of Huddersfield University, we made a, a, an application for an archaeological survey at Edge Hill, which turned up 1800 mm. artifacts from the battle. And the reason that those artifacts were found was because the battlefield had been preserved. That's Edge Hill. If I just go to Cropperdy, Cropperdy is in very good condition. You could stand at Cropperdy as you can mainly at Edge Hill. And you can see the battlefield as Charles I saw it, as Wallace saw it, as William Wallace saw it, as he sat on his horse at Great Borton, looking across the Charwell. And of course, there's building of the Oxford Canal in the 1780s, which has been invasive and changed the nature of the, of the flow of the, of the Charwell. The battlefields that I go and look at at Naseby, the property at Edge Hill, you can stand on the battlefield and see it as it was seen in the 17th century. And does that, how, how well does it reflect to um, personal or sort of contemporary accounts of battlefields? Are you, are you able to marry the two, two up? Are you able to, to find positions where people had been stood, that sort of thing? Yes. Um, for example, at, at Cropperty, there are, I think, nine accounts. One of the challenge, one of the, the slight frustrations about property, property is that actually the accounts more or less all tell the same story. Right. So you're looking, <laughs> you're looking for a bit of conflict between them, but actually it's it's pre-settled where the battlefield took place and what happened. Um, and although I'm very sceptical of when I hear about a particular activity took place or event took place at a particular time involving certain individuals. Mm. There are one or two exceptions to that, and one of them, I think I mentioned to you on Saturday, is the Wardington Ash at Property Bridge, mm. which mm. is mentioned in the enclosure map of the Wardington enclosure map of, of 1763, and it mentions the ash, the ash. And the reason yeah. it mentions the ash is that Charles the Charles the First, Secretary of State for War, wrote the, the most significant account of the crop reaction. And in it, he mentions Charles I dined under an ash at the point of which um, the Earl of Cleveland reforms after his several charges. Mm. And there's one tree in that field. And, <laughs> and the landowner, which is, the, which is still an ash, the, landowner, the landowner's family have been on that land for 200 years they believe that to be the ash, and it's the same ash which is on the Wardington enclosure. So although I, I, I keep open a sceptical mind, I think there's sort of 80% provenance that that's probably about right. And if that's right, then you can start thinking about Cleveland's position, his cavalry position, in relation to a lot of other evidence. For example, where the enclosures were, where the open field system was, and the other accounts. So you're looking to marry those all of those accounts alongside and on top of Matt, for example, that you can find in the 17th century. So I've spent so much time, Ken, more than I dare tell you, in the Bodleian in Oxford, trying to find maps of property bridge <laughs> in amongst the most obscure, you know, people who may just have tucked away in their files at the board yeah. a map of property. It's, they're the sort of, you know, Something that you you're desperate to try and find. So it's looking at lots of evidence. But that's the Wardington Ash is a favourite of mine, as well as the fact yeah. of I found a few cavalry buttons in and around it. Um, oh, brilliant! 
So I'm, you know, I'm 99% certain that's where the action took place. And yeah, I'd love to take you there. And then you can challenge me on that. <laughs> Brilliant. Very well, as, as, I said, as, I, yeah, as I said to you on Saturday, Crockery Bridge is one of those that I think I need to visit the battlefield to get it in my head of, 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 the, of the circumstances yeah. of, yeah, of yeah. how it happened. Because uh, yeah, it's quite, yeah. it, it's quite complicated in, in, uh, in my head of where everything was, um, yeah. but I'm, I'm I'm sure I'll get there with with a view of of the battlefield. Um, you've been out to have you been out to um, France as well, doing any tours or is that mostly personal? Uh, yeah, it's, it's mainly it's mainly personal. Um, I've just um, just spent a week, uh, four or five days actually, with um, a friend of mine who's a, um, a writer of Indian military heritage. And um, she was interested to follow the India call for a, a, a non for a piece of fiction that she's just completed, and yeah. um, that tour was meant to go was meant to take place at the beginning when COVID took over, before when she was at the embryonic stage of the book. Anyway, she wanted to, to she just wanted to visit many of the places associated with the India Corps. So we went to Merville, which was the uh, operations base for the Indy Corps in France. And it was also the place where the Lahore Division Casualty Clearing Station was set up. So we visited there. We went to Neuve Chapelle, of course, for the India Corps, for the Indian Memorial. And we also went to um, Vichata, which is just south of Ypres. And it was the place where the Indians went into the line for the first time during the first Battle of Ypres in October 1914. And most importantly, and most memorably that day, we went to Jardine's farm where uh, Dad Khan earned the first uh, Victoria Cross for the India Corps. Oh, and we, stood, yeah. we, we followed the, the route of the 129th Baluchis from Holabika. Isn't it short? Um, Jardine's farm was on the right of that position, pouring fire into the German lines oh. at, at a bleak angle. And then two, and two days later, they counterattacked and Dudad Khan lost the British officer that was with him and the five other servers of the vicars that was with him. And he, he continued to pump fire into the, the advancing German flank as they advanced, as they came back across the ground towards Hollebeke. And uh, we found, um, we found a, a 1915 um, piece of artillery nose cap Wow. The site of Jardine's farm, as well as the ubiquitous uh, shrapnel balls, of course. But of course, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is that Poppy, who, had, who I went with on uh, last week, she'd not been to the battlefields before. Mm. And so just the, I could see the impact that that visit was having on her. And in yeah. fact, she's, she's come back and had to, you know, look at your, you look at your manuscript again, or she's looked at a manuscript again with a slightly jejeune air. It's, yeah. Oh, I've got to rewrite. I've got to rewrite, and so she's doing that now. It's the just the impact of being on the ground. And was that the um, battlefield that you were familiar with prior to going, or did you, did you research that? Just yeah, I've, I've, I've been doing India-related military heritage for about fifteen years now, so mm. I'm I'm familiar with Nerve Chapelle, and I'm one of these. You know, I'm a bit of a. Uh, Slight nerd on this, Ken, is that I'll find somebody else who's incredibly patient to go with and I'll walk the ground, you know. So yeah. I've got a trench map for the first war. It's always very specifically targeted, you know. I'll, I'm going to follow that unit so I can find the jumping off position at Nerve Chapelle for the for, for Wilds Rifles, for example, 57th Wilds Rifles. And then I follow them into Nerve Chapelle, 
little bit of trespassing occasionally so I can keep to the line. Every now and again. As long as there's no big dog, French dog. And um, <laughs> and head to the heart until you come to the to the lay stream and then turning yeah. right and, and you know spend as much time as you can. So I'll try and dig deep on a battlefield rather than you know spend half an hour here and half an hour there. I like to I like to research yeah. it, make sure I've got maps, and make sure I really understand it as much as possible. I think one of the, one of my favourite um, things um, about history is when you put a photograph of. Uh, a scene from World War One and find that location and have the modern photograph and then superimpose the two. Uh, did yeah. I see one of those on your Twitter feed about one of the trenches? Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, in the British Library um, down in London, they they've got a collection of India Corps related photographs of which you, the one you've seen and that was of uh, Wild Rifles at V Charter. Uh, just as they'd come in, like, literally, they'd come up from Marseille to Orléans um, and then through three villages, and because they were needed on the Western Front, fill the gaps mm. as the Schlieffen plan was unrolling. Yeah. And um, there's, there's gaps between the Belgians to the north and the, and the British. And it's been held lightly by the 2nd uh, Cavalry Division. And uh, the India Corps go in, and there's a moment where one of the companies at Vichada is photographed by this photographer. Mm. Mm. And um, fortunately, because it's behind the line on the Western Front, the buildings have not been destroyed. So you can match up yeah. buildings. And there's four or five places that, you, that you're able to do that with the India Corps, mm. particularly rear areas at Merville, um, at the Saar, uh, and one or two other places as well and we've got four or five more of those and we'll so we'll roll them out at some point yeah i i really enjoy those there was a, there was a book that um i got many years ago probably late teens early 20s uh pans in normandy now and then which yes. kind of did that and um we had a brilliant holiday many years ago um where we we um, went back and, and found many of those places that were in that book um, and you, you you kind of follow the action look up and it's like well I can see the roof line there and it, it's, uh, it definitely all brings it back to life that's uh, yeah, it does, yeah. a fantastic yeah. fantastic way of, of, of illustrating uh, history um, so um, any plans to expand on the tour thing at the moment any, any options you can see for because uh, like you say you've just you brought in the have you done a uh, seek world war one in oxford as well yes yeah um I, i've done a little bit of work with the little history of the sikhs um mm. which is an organization set up by Rav singh and it's just to emphasize anglo sikh history but particularly the place of sikh history within within british history and uh, within a british history um setting and mm. uh Rav approached me uh, a few couple of years ago about highlighting not just Sikh but India connections in Oxford yeah so that's been a joy and we, we are looking into um, extending that to Western Front tours oh brilliant those student Sikhs um, there's, there's quite a lot of sort of insurance related items related, um, related to that and of course there's still a little bit of residual COVID washover and yeah. one or two other themes as well. So we, we need to work that out. But I, I would love to do that because 
Um, of course, you go to the Western Front, there are people from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada interested in their heritage. Indian people are also interested in their heritage. Mm. But although some of the, I think, Ledger and Anglia are starting to do India um, facing uh, Western Front tours, we think we could bring a certain quality and a certain um, yeah. dynamism that um, that little history that, that little history the Sikhs has already earned within the Sikh and wider Indian community. Well, yeah, I mean that that sounds like a that really does sound like a fantastic project to to bring forward, yeah. and I I yeah. hope that that comes together pretty soon. Um, yeah. Thank you. So um, that was uh, a nice chat about battlefield guiding quite enjoyed that um and uh, something that, as i said before we've not spoken about on the podcast um you mentioned um that uh, historical talks as well that you do to societies um and i was kind of in i thought it probably came the other way but it, it, you were saying that the the tours came from the talks rather than the talks came from the tours yeah they did yeah yeah very much that way yeah yeah and, he, and in fact even the tour even the um even the talks themselves also came out of my general museum work where I was working on an exhibition design. And, um, and then I'd be asked, you do a talk about this. And it, it, it yeah. started off with a couple of talks a year and now it's blossomed to 30. And then out of that, you do talks, but do you do tours of Edge Hill of yeah. property about the civil war and so on. And um, yeah, that's, that's how it's come. It's been an organic process really. And and from from that then you've you've entered into the world of of authorship, and um, yeah. there's a there's a, there's a couple of books, and we'll we'll talk about one that you did. Um, I, I, I don't know, can't remember. It was a few years ago, was it? The yeah, the one, yeah. yeah, on the Eighth um, Battalion of the East Lanks, um, and uh, I think the subtitle was Nobody's Heroes, and I'd. I, I, before you give me your version, I'll tell you what I thought when I when I saw that title because it's something that kind of came home to me when I started to look at, at World War One history. Um, we're familiar when we look at Waterloo and Napoleonics and uh, various periods of British history of you know the Twenty Second Cheshire Regiment and. Um, the 33rd, 1st West Yorkshire Riding, Duke of Wellington's Regiment, these, the, the, the Buffs and, and the, the, the Kents and all these, these famous regiments. But then we get to World War One and the, the massive uplifting manpower required for the battles. We get these, these units that appear and, you know, the, 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 the 28th, Cheshire Machine Gun Battalion and 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 all of these sorts of things. So when yeah. I read that title, that kind of that's what kind of brought it brought to my mind was was this this battalion that you know had never existed before and had no unit history and no um, silver service in the officers' mess that had come from India and uh, you know the the sort of things that those regiments have. So was that what was behind that title, or where did that title come from? Yeah, that's that's a really good uh, summary, Ken, of um, of of that title. It was a, uh, and in fact, it was a very short-lived battalion. Uh, mm. I'll say a bit about the background in a minute, but it was um, it was formed in October 1914 as part of K4, Fourth Kitchener's Army, 
Yeah. And it was disbanded as part of Haig's uh, reorganization of the British Army in February of 18. So it, it lived really for three and a half years. And um, yeah, it was uh, this essentially three types of uh, British battalions, the regulars, territorials. And it, it was a, this is a classic Kitchener battalion formed hmm. the duration of the war, really. Uh, and thereafter falls, it disappears altogether. And uh, it came about because my my uh, my great uncle, my grandfather's brother, was was killed at Luz in 1917. Not for the main battle, the famous battle, but um, was um, it had gone out of the line on that day that he was killed, 27th of February 17, and he was on brigade duty mm. as a sergeant, and uh, he was killed directing barbed wire by machine gun fire. In 1983, I spoke to his sister, who had been born in 1895, two years after John, wow. John Barker. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had a word with him. I'm one of those people I managed to have a chat with, <laughs> uh, um, with a few of his, with actually with his siblings, but particularly with his sister. And um, she told me a couple of stories about him that mm. stuck with me. And, and then fast forward into the mid-90s, um, my dad was doing a, a little bit more detailed genealogy and I started to ask it reminded me of those conversations with his sister and then I wanted to find out a little bit more and although you go to the war diaries you go to the battalion history and you're immediately engaged by this narrative again going back to when I was a child because your family member is con is connected into this worldwide conflagration that you know about and everybody knows mm. about and it's your connection into it and um, on the back, back of that I went to Fullwood Barracks of Preston and uh, I was told really that they'd not much there about him and in fact I had 10 questions as you know I'm a bit yeah. of a planner Ken I took 10 <laughs> questions and uh, in my mid-20s whatever age I was and um, I think the answer that came back was actually we, we, we don't have anything of those and, and the answer was Actually, that wasn't right. There was quite a lot of material in the archive. And I really cut my, after university, I really cut my teeth on military heritage, mm. researching the 8th East Lang. And it was a great, uh, it was a great foundation on which to build. And as a result of that, because it was a battalion, exactly as you, uh, you made clear in your introduction to this section, mm. it was a battalion with little heritage, with no poets, with nobody of any note in the battalion. That, that was a... That was a real driver to find out more. So we, we decided, I, I met, pardon me, I met uh, a chap called Chris Boardman, whose father had also fought, whose grandfather had also fought with the battalion. And we both fed off each other, our enthusiasm and interest. And we, we started to write letters to, uh, and emails at that time to um, the local Lancashire papers and Greater Manchester mm. Papers. In fact, about 20 odd of them. And we also yeah. went on radio. And as oh, a result wow. of that, as a result of that, fast forward, I'm, I became in touch with over 140 relatives of the 8th wow. Battalion. And that provided three quarters of the archive for the book, because it's that old cliche, information, you know, that the information is out there with just some of their families. And and even and in some cases, even if it wasn't eight that eight East Lanks related, it might have been related to, in one or two cases to 
some of the sister battalions that made up the 112 brigades, quite a few of their families got in touch as well because they had the same experience uh, in the line. Yeah. And was it was it somehow easier to research because it wasn't a huge, you know, two or three hundred year history of a of a regiment? It was that confined space of time that you were focusing in on. Did that, did that make it somewhat yeah. easier? Yeah, that's a, that's such a good point. Yes, it, it it I know no relatively it it was easier because it was a blank canvas. Mm. Um, so you you can follow your own avenues of thought. You've not got any preconceptions. I'm a big believer in if you're doing historical research, you don't have any preconceptions. You go you go back to the history and you start there. Yeah. No matter what you've heard or read or into or interpretations, you start in the past. You don't use the benefit of hindsight. You start in the mm. past and you follow the evidence wherever the evidence goes. And that mm. was exactly what what we did with um, with that book. Yeah, where it led to was absolutely fascinating. And we 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 just squeezed the life out of anything that anything that added to the story. Yeah. We included in that book. And what I'm proud of, most proud about it now, it sold almost four thousand copies. Wow. What I'm most proud about it is the fact that there's actually, there are one or two things that have turned up since 2008 in publication. It still holds up because of the, mm. we, were thorough, we were very thorough and we had, we just explored every avenue possible. Yeah. And um, I, I just think it's brilliant that one of those battalions that are so easily forgotten um is is remembered in 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 that book and and uh, you know such a a great thing for the families of those people and and also for the you know the wider people who are, are thinking god i'll never find anything about the 66 manchester battalion or something like that that that, no. that information is out there and is 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 available uh to uh to get so um is that book still available Stephen? is it who would it it's um it, it, Thanks to uh, modern uh, publishing practices, Amazon yeah. constantly says um, very few available, but more coming soon. So it means it's oh, print on demand. And oh, of course, you can get you can get, um, you can get inexpensive copies. The one thing, I, the other thing that I'm pretty proud about, just to mm. just to tell you about this, is that when I approached the publisher in 2008, lovely lady who who was very supportive overall. I said to her, I posed the book to her and she said, oh, you know, well, I'm not sure about this. And I, you know, I talked about long term, First World War centenary is coming up and yeah. the fact that, you know, no, not, no other battalion has got a history in the um, even in the 37th division. And she said, oh, go on, then we'll do 500 of them. And the fact that it's, it's gone up close to 4000 gives me huge amounts of pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, were you emailing that uh, person and just, uh, just no, saying? No, she was, no, she was terribly supportive, uh, Amy Rigg at, uh, at History Press, terribly supportive. Um, but um, yeah, she, she had the vision that, yeah, the First World War centenary is coming up. So actually, maybe Steve's right. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we'll move on now to... Um your your latest book and i think it's just been released if i if i'm, yeah, if I'm correct does, yeah. um and that's um a, a really interesting story it's called the flying Sikh, and it's the story of a chap called hardik singh malik and um i was completely unaware of the story until i i, I saw the book um so 
where did the where did the sort of the, the germ or the spark for this book come from? Where did you first hear the story? Um, I think um, I think it probably comes under the heading just linking back to like, the Prussians. You know, I'm I'm always looking um, for the way I work, and I'll say a bit about that in a minute. For the, mm. the way I work and the types of work that I'm, uh, the types of project I'm working on, that. I mentioned about I took on the Prussian army and that gave me um, a direction of look of travel in terms of researching something else which have a which had a different interpretation to the meta the meta narrative that I've been used to, which was the, the British view of Waterloo. And yeah. so over the over the past 15 years, I've been a, an independent museum consultant, um, self-employed, mm -hmm. and um so I work on exhibition design and I, I make funding applications for universities, museums, libraries and archives. And as part of that, and particularly during the First World War centenary, and I was doing a lot of work. I worked on behalf of the Soldiers of Oxfordshire Museum at Woodstock. We were looking for First World War centenary exhibitions. And as part of that, and again, narrative has been a theme we've talked about today in storytelling. Mm. I'm looking for stories which represent not just the Western Front and the views mm. of the Western Front, but I'm also looking for stories which represent the less well-known fronts of the First World War. Mm. And you, you, you know personally yourself, your your relative died in Mesopotamia, and um, you've got Salonika and East Africa and Gallipoli and so forth. So I was looking for other for other individual personal stories that told us something about those fronts. Oh. And once you get into that, you, you start getting into the story of India in the First World War. Mm. And the other part of that is that I'm look, uh, uh, much of my work was about um, representing local stories at a county level. So Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Warwickshire, Northampton, and so on. And when I started to research those, again, I was looking for individuals who story told, told something more about the sacrifices than just the Western Front. And I came across Hardit Singh Malik in yeah. Oxfordshire, and mainly because he was, um, he was associated with the University of Oxford and Balliol College. He attended mm. Balliol College, Oxford in 1912, and he's in the Royal Flying Corps suddenly. Yeah. And I thought this was fabulous, and I then found out He'd written a memoir in 2010, and I managed, and it was not available in the UK and still isn't actually. Yeah. And I managed to get a hold of a copy through a friend in India and who sent me a copy. And I read it, and it's a lovely memoir. It's one of those memoirs that it raises more questions than answers. He was a charming diplomatic guy, he ends up in the Indian Civil Service, ambassador to uh, Paris uh, in the 1950s after partition. Uh, appointed by Nehru. So he's very diplomatic. You know, here's an Indian trying to be recruited into the Royal Flying Corps in 1914, mm. 15, 16, and fails. He's very charming about it. And you just know that there's another story. And there was. Yeah. Another story to it. But just relating to the other question that you, the question that you asked me about the other book, it also represented a challenge because he had written a memoir. It was a mm. he'd written a memoir, and another Indian writer had written about Malik formally. Neither of them was aware, and neither was Malik 
during his lifetime of the, the content, the things that I'd found out about his war service. And what I found out essentially is that he'd been discussed at the highest levels of government during the First World War. And he was a case study for Indians, Indian officers, joining the Royal Flying Corps in 19, in November 1916. And between November 16 and March 17, five Indians were recruited into the Royal mm. Flying Corps, and then the window closed. Right. And no more were appointed. And they were test cases. That's 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 very interesting. Because I mean one of my one of my questions was going going to be um, you know, in in that in that period of history and with the attitudes at that particular time, that the barriers for him to become a pilot must have been absolutely huge, and, and I wondered how he overcame them. But you, are you kind of saying that he was um, a guinea pig, if you like, to um, for for people of that time to see where the Sikhs could be royal yes. pilots. Yeah, I'm trying not to give too much away about the book, but yeah, yeah no, you're spot, you're spot on, <laughs> Ken. No, you're, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right, Ken. That's exactly what happened. Um, and if you're, um, if you're an Indian subject, you were a British subject. You were a British subject. Mm. If you're an Indian, you're a British subject, de facto. And if you were uh, an Indian subject within the legal profession or mm. administration, the Indian civil service you had the same status as British people in those yeah. services or in those professions. In the military, it was completely different. If you were a person of colour in Britain in 1914, you were designated as an alien. The reasons that you've right. just outlined, because of the colour yeah. of your skin. That, it's as simple yeah. as that. And if you look at the Manual of Military Law for 1914, it sets it out clearly. And Malik attempted four or five times to enlist, including at the recruiting office at Balliol, where within two weeks, 450 students had joined up. And he was left on his own because he could not join up. That's one thing to note. So he has a challenge yeah. joining up. The reason that those five are selected is that in November, in September of 1916, Trenchard, the head of the Royal Flying Corps, he writes to Asquith's Imperial War Cabinet and basically says, if you do not put greater effort behind the recruitment of pilots and navigators we're going to lose the battle of the somme because it's in the middle of the battle of the somme september 16 and as a result of that liberal members of the establishment within the royal air force within the royal flying corps push the india office to start recruiting those five indians and malik is the only Sikh among them and yeah. it's because Britain's running short pilots. And in your research, did you find any um, sort of previous experience? Did he have any previous experience of flying? I mean, not not just for 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 him uh, as an individual, but for anyone in those days. That you know, um, was it just a case of anyone fancy being a pilot and people put their hands up? Yeah, that, you know, that's such a good point. That is such a good point, Ken. Yeah, put your hand up. Yeah. Quite a, the number of Indians who come to Britain and then go to the United States, and of course, that's where it's the it's the cradle of flight in the United States yeah. with the Wright brothers and that. So as on the back of that, many flight-related institutions all over the United States offer flight training. A number of them go to the United States, not Malik. Yeah. Not Malik. 
What Malik does is that because he can't be recruited into the armed forces, Britain's armed forces, through influential connections at Oxford, he's able to join the French Red Cross. Mm. And as a result of that, he goes to Cognac and he evacuates casualties at Cognac as an ambulance driver. The important point, though, is that he is able, he's an officer, he's designated and not an advo- as an officer in inverted commas of the French Red Cross. And he's therefore able to access the, the hospital where he's working, the officers mess with other French officers. And two things happen at that point. You've got the famous French um, flying ace, Georges Guinemere. And Guinemere is in his pomp in the middle of 1916. And Malik is with no interest before None whatsoever, yeah. got no interest in flying. He's suddenly enamoured, you know, like young blokes are. There's a, you know, like this guy. It's a craze. Yeah. I'm going, I'd like to be a flight commander. And some of the other, and the other part of this is that some of the other officers in the officers' mess, the French officers say, actually, we could probably get you into the French Air Force, the Aeronautic Militaire. And he writes back to his tutor at Oxford and says, Actually, I'm going to join the French Air Force. The French are offering me that role. And I'm, I'm, I'm determined not to give too much away. But yeah. What, basically, what happens is, is that the idea that one of Britain's allies would be offering a British subject a placement in its own armed forces when Britain was not able to, was was not going to take place and the and and very high ranking people at the india office and at the and within the royal air force make it happen and he's given an interview and he's in but it's only because because that political change that i mentioned earlier eventually short pilots and they're looking for indians in a short window fascinating story fascinating story and um did he did he go on to do frontline service once he'd he got did. into the yeah. yeah yeah so so he um he joined his 28 squadron under um like commander billy barker no relation sadly. Oh, no relation <laughs> no and uh, and of course yeah. billy barker I, I i will come to the point but i just can't pass without mentioning more about billy barker he's still to this day the most decorated canadian Listen to this MC and two bars, DSO and bar BC. Wow, right? That's a that's a military heritage. And Malik joins Barker in 28 Squadron and go to Passchendaele, go to um, French Flanders in October of 1917. And Malik goes into combat on several days and he claims two kills at Passchendaele, but he's shot down. Uh, on the 26th, um, he thinks he's flight. He's he thinks he believes that he's fighting Richthofen. It's comes across in the book. In all Indian flight circles, it's known that Malik fought against the Red Baron. I think that's he wasn't. He was fighting against Yasta 18, which was um, a different Yasta altogether, a different German squadron altogether. It just happened to have Ken. Red, they were known as the Red Noses. Ah, so the Red Plains, yeah. The Red Plains, yeah. So Mallet always yeah. claimed but he's not the only one, as um, as I found out, you know, there's, there's hundreds of claims that British pilots were fighting against Richthoff and they were. And uh, Malik, yeah. I think Malik's one of them. Anyway, he, he fights at Passchendaele, he's shot down, injured, goes to Italy, 
And he's flying camels, by the way, sock with camels. Yeah. Um, he does. I don't know. He, he does 50 days of fighting in the front line. Uh, but in Italy, he discovers that he has uh, a terrible allergy to castor oil, which lubricates camel engines. Yeah. And he then goes back uh, back to Britain and um, and fights on Bristol fighters from Biggin Hill. And he's fighting not against, and he's, he's defending the capital against, not against Zeppelins. The Zeppelin threat is gone. It's now those huge German bombers, the, the Gotha bombers, the yeah, yeah. bombers. And, and Malik goes into into operational activity against them, and um, and then the war ends. Wow, what a what a what a fantastic story! That is that is that is amazing, and um, and I think it's very important because I've I've noticed this in my um, non-trained research into Mesopotamia that um, the the Indian troops. Um, tend to get washed over in in certainly in the in the official histories of Mesopotamia that it's you know you know you'll have a big paragraph about because normally there would be um uh in inverted commas British battalion and then three Indian battalions within That's a brigade. Right, yeah. Um and you you would you know you get a paragraph about the actions of of one of the of the British unit and then a couple of lines about you know the Indians were somewhere near, um, and I, th- I think we're we're getting to that point. Uh, thankfully, that that history starting to come out now, um, yeah. and uh, we're starting to get more of a balanced view of of how yeah. the Commonwealth, the Empire forces, however you want to describe it, for for World War One, how how they they work together. So so that's yeah, a, yeah. that's a really good thing to to hear. Um, how how's it been received? Has it, have you had any feedback so far? It's, um, I'm at that, that sort of honeymoon stage where it comes out formally on the 30th of May. Yeah, a little in seven days' time. Um, I think Pen and Sword, who are the main publisher for within the UK, um, I think they've started to release some hard hardback copies. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So I've not had any feedback from that. But it's also going to be released, be released in India by HarperCollins India on the same date. Oh, wow. And, um, and this, I think there's going to be a Hindi version. Well, there is going to be a Hindi version as well. They're, they're hmm. confident that they can they can sell a lot of copies of it, in um, particularly in, in northwest India, in Punjab and so on. Hmm. Um so uh, yeah, no feedback yet. Slightly, um, of course, always slightly anxious about that. But it's, uh, you know, I'm. I would say this would not, but I am. It's a book I'm proud of. It's uh, it's taken a lot of work, and uh, but it's it's been a fascinating subject and, and a privilege to work on. Yeah, it's been. Um, I've just been looking today, and it's available to purchase. So I'd, I wasn't sure okay. whether it had it had been released out Thank into you. the world yet. So, um, okay. well, the the best the best of luck with that as it as it uh, it comes out, and uh, I really hope it's going to be a very successful book. Um, have you got any future projects planned, um, book wise? Any kernels yeah. of ideas that you can? Yeah, reveal? I think. Um... Uh, yeah, again, it's the narrative theme. I've um, in the period before the First World War. Again, it's 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 about Indian students. Um, the home, home rule movement in India came about in 1916. Uh, in they came to the foremost, uh, came to the fore in 1916. But Indian students were politically active in Britain before the First World War, and there was there was one assassination of Ferguson Wiley. Uh, in London in 1909, 
but there's a lot of other home rule activity. I intend going through the records of, of Scotland Yard uh, yeah. because Scotland Yard and, and the India office were keeping under observation um, quite a lot of those Indian students, in fact, many of them. Mm. And I got the feeling that there's a good story there somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that sounds interesting. I, I like the sound of that. Um, yeah. Well, I've got I've got a suggestion um, as we come to the end of the of the interview now for uh, for a future project for you. Um, and I, I'm aware um, that you did some archive work with Luton Town Football Club. Um, I did indeed, Ken. Yeah, and and uh, at that particular time, uh, I think when you started, they were somewhere in League Two, and then now on the verge of entering the premiership um so um it's just a plea from me if you would like to do some heritage work at bradford city <laughs> and work your magic there so that we that, that bradford yeah you're definitely onto to... something there ken i did i've been yeah. telling my colleagues that Luke, yeah i said yeah the factor x yeah yeah it's it's difficult to say <laughs> How Luton have risen from League Two to the the knocking on the door of the Premiership, but I'm just going to say Stephen Barker and just leave it there. I think it's probably the best. Thing to... Far too kind, Ken. <laughs> far too, far too kind. Yeah. So um, how how do how do people get hold of you, Stephen? What 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 are you on social media wise? Yeah, I'm on um, I'm on mainly on Twitter. Um, yeah. Uh, mainly because it's words. I'm, you know, I'm a words person. At yeah. Instagram, I'm on it. I'm on both of them at, at B Stephen with a PH at D Stephen B. Yep. On both of those, but I don't really get Instagram. You know, image dominated. I'm, I'm not au fait with it particularly well, but I do post on, and I do have a, a dedicated Facebook page as well. And Which they is. Got all, uh, oh, oh, I'll have to. Um, to Twitter, you'll find me on Twitter. Yeah, you'd find yeah. you on Twitter. Yeah, that's and, the and there's, well. there's a, a Stephen Barker website as well, isn't there? Um, there? There is, yeah, yeah. It's www.stephen-barker.com. Brilliant. Well, um, and the book you said is Pen and Sword, uh, publisher in the UK, and Arthur um, Collins in India. Yeah. yeah, and um, just for anyone listening, if uh, our little snappets of, uh, of of chat about the the plot of the book, um, it does sound absolutely superb. So if you just want to, I just type if you just type in the Flying Seek into uh, Google, it will bring up lots of different options to uh, to purchase the book. Um, none of which are sponsoring this podcast, so I'm not going to mention any of them specifically. <laughs> but it's it's very easy to find. Um, so, um, just before we finish off, I always ask my guests if, if they've got a question for me, because I've been going at them for two and a bit hours. Uh, had you thought of a question, Stephen, or have I got off scot-free this week? No, I think, you know, there's, there's always a question, Ken. What I'm always amazed by when I look at your your repertoire of, of collections of war game figures, I never mm. know what's coming next. So my, my question is, what have you got a plan for something new that's coming next? Uh, as a moment, I haven't. Um, I'm I'm deep in the middle of the Garibaldi project, um, and normally I have I have stuff in my head that's lying around for years, and I think about it. And the only thing that that I've got sat around that I've never scratched the itch of is Crimea. But uh, it, as a as a war game, it's not particularly. I don't 
find it particularly interesting because of the of the disparity between the Russians with their smoothbore muskets and the French and British and Piedmontese and all the other lot who turn out for for the other side with their rifled muskets and it just as a game it just tends to degenerate into the British and French standing outside smoothbore musket range and firing and yeah yeah it's a bit boring but the the look of it the look of it so I don't know maybe one day maybe one day but at the moment uh, we're we're learning all about Garibaldi which is a new period of history for me which I'm really really enjoying um and um then I'm going to go back and do some Italian wars um we're supposed to be doing uh, a big refight of Pavia at the wow. royal at the royal armories in front of the Pavia display wow so, man. yeah so um I need to get my finger out and do some stuff that I haven't got at the moment <laughs> um, oh, that would be fantastic yeah. I'll definitely come and have a look at that yeah, because all my all my arm is based around the early part of the Italian wars rather than later. So I need to yeah. uh, up my game and go outside of my comfort zone and and get all arquebusy rather than all crossbowy yeah, <laughs> towards yeah. the end. Oh, that's well, it's been it's been an absolute joy having you um, on the on the podcast, Stephen. Thank you very much for taking the time today, um, and it's been great chatting with you about old times and, and uh, new mm. times as well. I'm 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 glad you're back in the hobby, and I'm sure we'll get a game in soon. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for coming on. If you'd like to say uh, good night to everyone, I will. And um, thank you very much, Ken, for having me on. It's been uh, been a pleasure. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope it's been of interest to uh, all your listeners. I'm sure it will be. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Um, Good night. That was a lovely chat with Stephen there. Enjoyed that very much. Going back to my old days when I started uh, wargaming and then catching up on some topics that we haven't covered before, like Battlefield Guiding, etc. And uh, Stephen's new book, Flying Seek, that sounds like a a fantastically interesting and unique story. Uh, I'll put a link to uh, purchase the book in the show notes for this on both YouTube and on Podbean when it comes out. And just a reminder to everyone that uh, if you're listening to this on Podbean, you are getting this first on on any podcast uh, application, Apple, Google, wherever you're, you're listening. It comes out on an audio version only first, uh, and then when the new edition comes out, um, the old edition goes onto YouTube with some relevant pictures just clicking away in the background. Um, so if you're watching this on YouTube, then um, it's probably been out for two, three, maybe even four weeks uh, beforehand. Um Podbean, the audio is a free subscription, and um, just you know, follow my the podcast, and you'll get a a little um, notification every time an episode comes out, um, which is great for me. The more followers I get, the the more um, people will start to listen to this because it will receive uh, more uh, traction from uh, the the various search engines and stuff so uh, i'd love for as many people as possible to listen to this award-winning podcast let's not forget that a fantastic time down at CrackCon 2 uh, a few weeks ago uh, down in derby with the the guys from the plastic crack podcast and uh, you may remember 
uh, episode 20, I spoke to Dom and Ken from uh, the Plastic Crab Podcast. And um, I am hoping for my next episode, episode 26, uh, to have the other two members of uh, the Fab Thor. Uh, That's Martin from Seventh Son and Stee from On Point HQ uh, to come along and uh, get the other half of the Plastic Crab Podcast on here for a chat and um, catch up about what happened with CrackCon 2 and uh, just general chit chat about their channels and uh, what their plans are for the future. So um, I'm hoping to get back on track with that, get that out in the second or third week in June, if it's all possible, and uh, get back on schedule. As I say, I've, uh, I've missed a couple of weeks. Thanks once again for listening. It's uh, been brilliant having you on board. And until next time, see you.